Roll call, please. Mayor Yeager? Here. Councilmember Brady? Here. Councilmember Atkins? Here. Councilmember Burgell? Here. Councilmember Cherubellini? Here. Councilmember Arroyo? Here. All right. Please uh, join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, we uh, obviously have no reports out of closed session since there was not a closed session. Um, we'll move to mayor's announcements, and under mayor's announcements, uh, we have a proclamation that Kim is going to be his read for us. So, would the friends of the Golden Rule come forward, please? This is such, such an exciting thing. In recognition of the Golden Rule, June 16, 2015. Whereas the Veterans for Peace Golden Rule Project has recovered and restored the Golden Rule, a wooden sailboat of historical significance whose crew inspired a movement to stop nuclear bomb testing in the Pacific Ocean, and whereas, against all odds, the Golden Rule was rescued and lovingly restored by an enormous community effort and local Veterans for Peace groups, and Whereas the Golden Rule Project is bringing the historic boat back to life to, to use it as a floating remembrance of nuclear resistance and messenger of peace throughout the world, and whereas the restored Golden Rule will voyage once more to show that a nuclear peace is possible and that bravery and tenacity can overcome militarism, and Whereas the Golden Rule Project will collaborate with groups and organizations who share at similar intent to reveal the true costs of war, to help eliminate nuclear weapons, and to shed light on the myth of safe nuclear power. And whereas the basic guiding principle of the Golden Rule's crew is the use of nonviolent direct action to influence future generations of activists, now therefore, I, Council Member Kim Burgell, on behalf of the Eureka City Council, do hereby extend gratitude and appreciation to the many community members of the Golden Rule Project. Perhaps I could just take a few minutes to thank the uh, Humboldt community. I'm from uh, away, actually. Uh, we call them the Sweetwater Seas, the Great Lakes, uh, Ohio specifically, where you've got our basketball team on the ropes. Um, we also have people here from uh, Philadelphia and all over the country and the world, actually, who are interested in the Golden Rule Project and, uh, and re restoring it. I think uh, Commissioner uh, Councilmember Burgell pretty much said it all, but maybe just a few quick comments. The, uh, the reason the boat is famous is because the 1958 mission was, first of all, and the reason that many of us got involved is that they were absolutely committed to nonviolence, and furthermore, furthermore, the utmost respect for the humanity and dignity of their opponents. That's something that uh, Vietnam, uh, 
Veterans for Peace, which I'm a proud member of, really has tried to learn from, and we're going to carry that. That's one of the messages we're going to be carrying forward. Uh, there's a lady named uh, Marie Bolin who was involved in the original Golden Rule Project in 1958, and she wound up in Vancouver, Canada, in 1971, and they were wondering what to do to make a, a nonviolent statement about uh, nuclear testing. Uh, and uh, that's, how, that's how Greenpeace was born. She suggested, well, why don't you take a boat up to Alaska and make a, make a statement? And so that's the, uh, that's the origin of, of Greenpeace. Similarly, uh, the Vega from New Zealand, the Pacific Peacemaker, the, uh, the Sea Shepherds, those are all the Golden Rules grandkids. And I can tell you, I can tell you that there is a tremendous amount of excitement around the world about this project. Uh, I could go on, but I won't because I've got my timer. Well, I, I'm doing pretty good on time actually. But I'm going to. I know you have. I know you have serious, difficult business. I'm involved in local politics uh, back home in Sandusky, Ohio, and uh, so I don't want to take up uh, too much of your meeting time at all. Although I'm really jealous of your commission council room here. It's much better than ours. Um, I would be remiss. I would be remiss as a supporter of the project if I did not, first of all, thank uh, Leroy Zerlang and uh, Chuck DeWitt. We, there, was, there was a rumor this afternoon <laughs> about several phone calls going around this ever-busy boatyard about the huge amount of money that Leroy turned down, had to turn down, because he, 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 he was foolish enough to get involved in the Golden Rule. So we're, we're splashing that boat when he could be doing uh, other sorts of business. This Saturday, June 20th, there's a, a really nice celebration. I think it's, I think it's going to be, you know, it's, it's unique in my experience, uh, where you really have a boat that's a, a historic boat that's reborn, and it's going to be christened, and some really interesting people <clears throat> from around the country will be here for that event. I also want to uh, personally thank somebody who's on the committee, and I, I, I don't know much, as a, as a, as a political scientist, they just let me do things like this because. They don't allow us to handle sharp objects, you know, we don't. So, but I can, I can thank uh, Leroy and I can thank Chuck DeWitt. Chuck has sacrificed about four years, four and a half years of his life, nearly every day, nearly every day. To me, that's, uh, that's really, that's really merits uh, thanks from the community. The Golden Rule Project would also like to thank all the local businesses that have made our uh, success possible. So I'm just going to list them really quickly here. Uh, Pearson Home Improvement, Almquist Lumber, Schmidtbauer Lumber, Times Printing, uh, Zerlang and Zerlang, of course, uh, Humboldt Bay Maritime Museum, England Marine, Figus Construction, Humboldt Bay uh, Harbor District, North Coast Fabricators, Fish Brothers, Los Bagels, and a guy who uh, gave us his entire weekend to very carefully put on very big decals on our sails, which we hope to be able to fly on Saturday, uh, Richard Baterni at, uh, at Expo Art. So again, we, uh, we're, we're extremely grateful to the uh, Humboldt community. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really kind of thinking about convincing my wife to move out here if I can, but she's got some wonderful gardening stuff going on back in Ohio. But uh, you, have a, you have a really, really uh, wonderful community with wonderful people. Thanks so much.
Okay, at this time I want to call uh, Ryan Gerving forward uh, to introduce some important people. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Uh, you're aware of the very important relationship we maintain with Humboldt Bay Municipal Water District. Uh, the district supplies water not only to the city of Eureka, but uh, the city of Arcata, uh, McKinleyville CSD and HCSD as the other large municipal customers along with Manila CSD, Philbrook, Glendale CSD and the city of Blue Lake. So it's really important that all of those uh, entities work together in a very co cohesive manner and in the short time that I've been involved with the group I've both heard and seen firsthand um, the work that Carol Reich has has done to make all of that happen. Carol's been with the district since 2000, and in the 15 years that she's been there, she's, uh, we're doing a little bit of figuring today, and she's worked with six directors of public works and three city managers, and done a very good job of maintaining that good relationship with the city of Rica the whole time. Uh, the reason we're here tonight is that Carol's retiring next month, and uh, Paul Helliker is the new general manager of the water district. They're both here tonight along with Bruce Rupp from their board of directors uh, to do a bit of a handoff and I'll turn it over to them right now. Thank you very much Brian and I've got to say you have got a winner with this guy. I've only worked with him for three months and he is terrific and I know you you know that as is, as is uh, your manager Greg Sparks. First of all thank you very much Mayor Yeager and Council. I will keep this very brief and Brian did a nice job of introducing it. And I'd like to add one other element and I'll be very brief and succinct here partly for historical context. Um, our district was formed one year shy of 60 years ago and the reason we were formed was to meet the municipal water supply needs of two entities, the city of Eureka and the city of Arcata. And you had your own Mad River project at the time and it just didn't pan out as the way originally planned and the city of Eureka was having very dire water quality and water supply issues. So you were one of the motivations uh, that we were formed and, and, and our first municipal customer. Um, the County Board of Supervisors and uh, key committees of the Eureka Chamber of Commerce really provided some of the, the civic and governmental leadership at the time to help us be, uh, be formed. And 89% of our community voted to form our district. And a year later, very high percentage, wasn't quite that high, voted to uh, issue $12 million of general obligation uh, bonds to construct their system. And for 50 years now, actually a little over 50 years, our community has enjoyed this incredibly well-built, well-designed, well-maintained uh, water system that provides very, very high quality drinking water um, to, to our whole community. Um, I do want to just touch a little bit on the partnership. Um, I and my board and our, and our district really views our relationship with the seven customers as, as a partnership. It takes both of us doing our respective uh, jobs and playing our respective roles to reliably supply that high quality drink or drinking water in a real seamless manner to our community. We never fight. We're never at odds, and if there's an issue, we work through it very, very constructively. And I want to thank you for that. Over the years, the council and your city managers and your key staff have always shown up with this incredible partnership and constructive attitude. I, I look to Water Task Force members, uh, Council Member Brady now, and, and those who've served in that capacity before when we need to work at the, at the elected level to solve a problem or to inform at that level. And Eureka has always been incredibly um, 
focused on a regional perspective, yet not losing sight of your local needs and interests, has always shown up constructively, and is also a number of times when I'm going to say, help the little guy. Sometimes the little guys, the Blue Lakes, the Manilas, and the Fieldbrooks, you can get caught at the end of some really costly decisions if the big guys only look after themselves, and th th this city has never done that. So thank you for a wonderful partnership and your support over the years. I truly am going to miss uh, the professional side of my job, but I'm going to stay in the community. I'm looking forward to community service and continuing to plug in, and um, it's been an honor to serve in this capacity, and I really thank the city of Eureka for being a great customer and a great partner. Thank you, Carol, for your service. Good evening, Mayor, members of the Council. <clears throat> I'm a citizen of Eureka and a member of the Humboldt Bay Municipal Water District Board of Directors. And uh, I <clears throat> want to start by uh, saying in my many years of experience in management, I have always said that no one is indispensable. Any job can be refilled or re and any person can be replaced. If there's a person around that I've worked with in that 30 years, 35 years of experience that uh, argues against that, it would be Carol Reich. Carol is a, has been an excellent general manager. She's done a wonderful job. She reaches out to the community, and she will be missed. However, having said that, I think we've got a wonderful replacement coming in, and it's my honor tonight to introduce that individual to you. Uh, Paul Helliker <coughs> came from a very strong applicant pool. He has extensive experience in water uh, management. He's got statewide experience in issues related to water. Uh, he's well known in the state, and uh, his background is very strong. In addition to that, he has a strong environmental background, which is very important for this area. So he will do an excellent job of balancing the environmental challenges that we face uh, in maintaining that valuable resource that we have in the Mad River Basin with providing high-quality water delivered at the least cost to our uh, residents here. So it is my honor and my pleasure to introduce our new general manager, Mr. Paul Helliker. Thanks, Bruce, Mr. Mayor, members of the council. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Uh, I'm looking forward to fully transitioning into the job. Carol and I have a little bit of an overlap for the next few weeks uh, while I learn all the history, and she mentioned some of it tonight. Um, most recently, I was with Department of Water Resources uh, working on statewide issues, and before that, I was the general manager at the Marin Municipal Water District, and we served 190,000 people as a retail supplier, so I know what your situation is here at the city of Eureka. And we had a good collaborative relationship down there with our wholesaler, Sonoma County Water Agency. So I'm looking forward to being on that side of the uh, equation and working closely with you all. So thanks for the opportunity to introduce myself tonight, and I'll look forward to working closely with you in, in the future. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Okay, we'll move to. Uh, Council reports at this time. Does anyone have a report? Marion, go ahead. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I was I forgot to bring this um, at our, our last meeting. This is a tire pump, and <laughs> and it was gifted to us by the Caltrans um, uh, bike riders from May Bike Month uh, when we had a um, kind of a contest for getting people from agencies to ride their bikes that day. So there was four of us from Eureka that rode our bikes down at the noon gazebo rally, of which that was Kim, 
Natalie, myself, and Dave Tyson representing Eureka. So because they had already won this, uh, I guess, the previous year, um, somehow we ended up being delegated to receive it so that we would have a pump here at City Hall. So that's the story on this pump. And I just wanted to acknowledge and thank Caltrans for being so generous to gift us this pump. We're not going to charge it for air, though, right? Free. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's manual. <laughs> you have to do your own work. All right. Thank you, Marion. Any other council reports? All right. Uh, we'll move to public comment period then. And this is the time for members of the public who wish to be heard on matters that do not appear on the agenda. And pursuant to City Council Resolution 2011-22, City Council policy is to limit each speaker to three minutes. On such time, allotment or portion thereof shall not be transferred to other speakers. The public will be allowed to speak concurrently with the calling of an agenda item following the staff presentation of that item. And pursuant to the Brown Act, the City Council cannot take action on any item that does not appear on the agenda. So at this time, is there anyone that would like to address the Council? Sue, come on up. Sue Brandenburg, Eureka. I want to revisit the bicycle uh, ordinance that was voted down. Um, there is a study on the bicyclelaw.com, and I thought people were rather cavalier on, oh, bicycles don't hurt people. Well, they did a study from Hunter College, and I can't read the whole thing to you, but about 1,000 pedestrians a year are hospitalized because being hit by bicycles. So I'd like to come back. I'd like to revisit this. Uh, I think that that ordinance can go through that can suit everybody. But when you go over to Henderson Center, those aren't 25-year-old kids running around on the sidewalks. There's people my age there, and we're vulnerable. And, but the 25-year-olds are on the bicycles. So I'd like to see some law enforcement there. And I noticed that you have a disclaimer on your city council saying that you don't have a mandatory duty to enforce the law. That's true, but I would worry about not enforcing the law because there might be a gross negligent point there. So as far as bicycles, I think that should be brought back. The other thing that I want to bring back, and I'm going to keep pushing this and see what I have to do to make this work, I have the Madison Heights Licensing Landlord Program. It is very entailed. I think it's over the top, but I think at this point that the Eureka would find it necessary. It will cut down on the crime. I'm suggesting that when the person gets a business license to be a landlord, and I am a landlord and I do have a business license, that for every apartment or house they own unit that they pay $25 a unit. That will keep some of your fire department people or some of your pop people employed. I will run copies of this and I will run it off. The third thing is, is Eureka ranked as 10th highest pension paying city in California? This is in the time standards. And I'm thinking, is this what this is all about? Is this why we're laying off our police and our fire department is because there were some greedy people 20, 25 years ago? Uh, I'm looking at David Tyson's retirement, $137,159.16 a year. I think that's outrageous for a city this size. So I want to know, is this what this is all about? And I'm sure that you people will let me know that. And with that, I will sit down and shut up. Thank you. 
All right, thank you, Sue. Is there anyone else that would like to address the council now? At all right, we'll close the public comment period then and move to public hearings. And this is a public hearing on the 2015-2016 budget. And I think you're going to start off, Mr. Manager. Yes, thank you, Mayor. City Council held two public work sessions on the budget, June 3rd and 4th, to review departmental budgets, address questions from the council, and to take public input. Finance Director presented uh, also a great deal of information in graph form that demonstrated trends in our revenues and expenditures. One of the graphs that was shown at the both first and second meeting, kind of updated the second, was the one that showed that, that since the inception of Measure O in 2010, that the increased spending in police and fire have risen to a level higher than the revenues that are brought, brought in from Measure O. So essentially, 100% of Measure O has gone to police and fire since the inception of that half-cent sales tax. That will continue to be the case when Measure O sunsets this next year on June 30th. Measure Q then goes into effect when Measure O sunsets. And I just always want to make it clear that Measure Q is a continuation of Measure O, and it's not an additional half-cent. So that will uh, we'll start up in this next year. At the conclusion of the second work session, there was a majority consensus from the City Council on, on, on a number of issues regarding the budget. One was raising uh, the zoo admittance fees, uh, further reductions from what had initially been proposed to uh, the Convention Visitors Bureau and the Visitor Services at the Chamber of Commerce. This coupled with reductions that were proposed by staff since the initial proposed budget was presented provided funding of approximately $190,000 that council directed go back into the police budget to maintain our current animal control and shelter program and to add back a position uh, in the police department which would, would be an, an administrative tech position. Those, uh, those items, those changes are noted in attachment one uh, in your budget document or in your council agenda document. The additional attachments, uh, attachment two is the budget resolution, attachment three is the resolution re required to enact the Eureka Public Financing Authority budget. And I think with that, I'll turn it back to you, Mayor. Okay. Uh, we have any questions right now for manager or finance director? Okay, well then we'll open the public hearing. Uh, at this time, is there anyone that would like to address the uh, council regarding uh, the budget for this coming year? Please step forward. Good evening, Mayor, City Council, and City staff. Um, I just want to take this time to um, look at our partnership that we've had since 2009 um, a great partnership, first with the Coastal Conservancy and you guys and New Directions. Um, to date, we're over 300,000 pounds of trash that we pulled out of the marsh and wetland areas. We've aided the EPD in the shopping cart retrieval. This is all done because EPD, your fire department, and most of all, Miles Slattery has actually been tolerable of us, worked with us on a new process trying to find new solutions to kind of help with an issue that is unresolved and may go unresolved if we keep looking at it the way we do. Unfortunately, we can't find the budget money for the dumpster that we were putting trash in. 
and that's okay. We, we need to look at that. 82% of the trash that we gathered from the wetlands and the marsh area behind the Bayshore Mall was on city property. The shopping carts, I gather them from city property. That's the only other trash that actually goes into those dumpsters besides the malls and your guys from out in the marsh. But once again, I want to thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we've had for so many years. I do not want to see it end. I'm up here thanking you guys and hoping and crossing my fingers that we can find a little bit of money to at least pay for the trash since New Directions pays for the labor. This has all been done as a blessing to you guys for allowing me to come from the city of Arcata to city of Eureka, although my residence is in McKinleyville. So we are trying to branch out. All we ask for is the support of help and the resources. We've done a good job for you guys. I'm very proud of what we've done for you guys, and I wouldn't take back one minute of it. I thank you guys very much for your time. Thank you, John. Lorraine? Good evening, Mayor and Council. How are you, Frank? Good. Are you? I am one of many people um, disappointed that we passed both Measure O and Measure Q, and yet with our crime rate are going to be faced with some public safety cuts. Um, I listened to Patrick Cloney several weeks ago when he was talking about um, Transparent California and I've spent a lot of time in the last five days on that site looking at the 58 counties in California and trying to make a comparison apples to apples between Eureka spending and this current crunch and other county seats of similar size and their spending. The best I came up with was Martinez, California. Martinez is the county seat for Contra Costa County, and of course, we're the county seat here. They have a total population of 36,000. We have 27. They have a total number of city employees of 253. We have a total number of 519. They have a total number of um, full time, year-round city employees of 123, and we have 229. They have many of the same problems that we do. They have a giant jail. They have a big mental health facility. By the way, the next time there's a tax increase that's proposed, I'm going to raise my hand and say, can we please build a mental health facility that is appropriate for the mental health problems that we have here? But. I guess the bottom line is toward the bottom of this summary. The total city employee compensation cost per resident of Martinez is 459 and the average wage in Martinez for a person who's employed is 65,000. In Eureka, the total city employee compensation cost per resident of Eureka is 923 and the median income here is 35,000. They, they have roughly twice the income that we do and their costs are roughly half. This is a train wreck that was coming a long time ago. 
I don't believe that this administration had um, anything, if anything, it was very small, to do with this. These contracts were signed. Negotiations went on 20 years ago, 22 years ago, that led to this right now the bill is due train wreck. I don't know how to get out of it, but I know that this is a wonderful place to live. People are drawn to the water. Everybody wants to live in a Victorian seaport. We have more Victorians than any place in Northern California, including San Francisco. The only things we aren't getting under control relate to crime, for sure. Homelessness and crime are so related, and the mental health issues, and this budget crunch, which is going to leave us with um, possibly a much greater crime problem, and we can't afford it. It seems like this is out of whack. It seems like the negotiations that went on a long time ago have less left us, the city residents, holding the bag. I could have printed 35 pages for you guys, but I did you a favor and only printed two, and I think it's apples to apples. And I think it's going to be a long time getting out of this, but I wish you well. I hope you make it, and I think you will. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Good evening, Council and Mayor. Sylvia Scott, Eureka. And by the way, she didn't have a chance to tell you this. Eureka tax is 8.75%. Martinez is only 8.25%. And Martinez gets Bart. Okay. We had two elections where the people of this city passed Measure O and Measure Q. That tax, we were told, was for fire safety. It wasn't for the zoo, it wasn't for the chamber of commerce, and it wasn't for street sweeping. And more importantly, if you didn't have this tax money, this city would be filing bankruptcy, and these people wouldn't be getting this money anyway. And maybe if we did file bankruptcy, we would get somebody in here that could manage the piggy bank. Now, I don't know if somebody is lying to us before this election or somebody was incompetent before this election. But I do know that somebody knew that this bill was coming due before election time. Now, I can't get my tax money back. Are you all going to give me a refund? I don't think so. I can't get my vote back either. But I did not vote to fund the Chamber of Commerce the zoo, and by the way, whoever thinks that this zoo is the crown jewel of Eureka needs to get out more. Maybe this zoo was okay when it was free, but I'm telling you, you really need to get out more. And the street sweeper cannot do their job because the city won't put up signs or make people move their cars, so we have the cleanest middle of the streets in the entire county, probably the entire state. And if you won't let him do the job, why are we paying them? This is not a small financial blip. This is a big problem. But my vote did not go for you to pay off your bills. It went for fire and safety. That's what you told me it was going for. Now this is a bait and switch. If you were a corporation, 
you would get fined and the feds would come knocking on your door. I'm sorry, this government didn't get that memo, but this is not fair. You need to go back to your board, sit down, sharpen your pencil, and remember, I did not vote to, to finance the zoo. I didn't vote to finance the Chamber of Commerce. And I didn't vote to finance the street sweeper, period. Thank you. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Council. I'm Tony Smithers with the Humboldt County Convention and Visitors Bureau, which is funded out of your bed tax collections, not Measure O or Measure Q, of course. Um, I'm here just to thank you for including and keeping us in your budget to whatever degree. We, of course, are cognizant that City of Eureka has been the main supporter of destination marketing for Humboldt County for many, many years, and we're aware of that. And we try and make sure that Eureka gets top billing in all of our marketing, and maybe we need to uh, show you more that what we're doing for you, but um, we, look, we look forward to doing that. Um, one of the things I just wanted to put on the table tonight, as you figure your budget out, uh, which, which I don't envy you, is that we are convinced that all the signs are showing we're going to have a very strong year of tourism, perhaps the best ever. And uh, I would like to put on the table the idea that maybe six months into the year, when you've had a chance to see how your spring and summer tax collections have been, if we can take a look. And if you're, so, if you're very well ahead, of your projected collections for your budget, perhaps we can discuss a little bit of a restoration of our marketing budget so we can continue to try and fill your hotel rooms. And apart from that, again, thanks for all the support you've been giving us, and uh, we'll keep working for you. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Sue Brandenburg, Eureka. I was in Seal Beach Leisure World looking at property to see how I'd feel in a retirement community when you had all your meetings. So what I don't know, and I haven't heard anything about, is I have seen you give deferred payments to alcohol people on Broadway. I've seen you give deferred payments to the builder Danco, Danco for all of his uh, cost for putting the downtowner in. I saw you take property off the property tax rolls. I see you make contributions to nonprofits. My question to you is, do you know how many much money is being deferred right now that should be coming into this city? Then I heard one of your people say, well, people owe us money and we want to put a lien on their um, property tax. Um, I told Dave Tyson a number of years ago, I think small claims is 7,500, you laundry listed. If you have people that owe the city money and it's under $7,500, you take them in that courtroom, you get a judgment against them. If they do not pay it, then you take them into debtor's court. If it is a company, then you take the sheriff and a keeper and you sit there and you take every check they owe you right out of their mail. This is a real easy project. I don't understand your thinking uh, when you go to warn someone that you're going to find them because their property isn't up 
to date or they've done something and then you send them two or three letters, shorten it. Tom, you, I hear from you within 10 days or you're going to get fined. Your employees are going to have more time to take their job. You don't take away the police. You don't take the fire department away, not, especially after all these nonprofits and I almost start swearing. I call them damn nonprofits when no one's around. And you give them all this money to bring all these alcoholics or drug people in here. We need those police. We need the fire department, or we should all start packing our own gun. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Jennifer Raymond. I am a business owner in Eureka. I am also a volunteer for Humboldt Spay Neuter Network, which is one of those bleep nonprofits. We do not get any funding from the city, the county, or any other government source. I'm here to thank you very much for your decision to maintain the contract with the county animal shelter. That was a very wise decision. When I heard that it was under consideration not to renew it, I was horrified. I've been working in animal welfare in this county since I moved here in 2000. And in fact, in 2002 was part of the discussion with Sequoia Humane Society where I worked when the county wanted to take over the shelter. In those discussions, the county, uh, which at the time was paying $20,000 a month to Sequoia Humane Society to shelter all the animals in the county, um, said to us, we know we can do it less expensively. They built a shelter, it cost $4 million, and today they spend about $83,000 a month to house those animals. So I was horrified thinking that Eureka might step into the same mistake of thinking, oh, we'll just build a little shelter and do it ourselves a lot less expensively. It is very, very expensive. I understand it, and I understand the distress of people thinking that we're spending that much money for stray dogs and stray cats. I commend your decision. I think we need to also look at other alternatives. I run Humboldt Spay Neuter Network. We know that that would significantly decrease the expense if we can get the birth rate down. And I'd like to talk with you over the coming year about how we can increase spaying and neutering. We spay and neuter almost 2,000 animals every year in Humboldt County. And it is making a difference, but we need to make more of a difference. So thank you for your decision. I think if there is going to be any more discussion of this, we need to give it a year because a lot of hard talking is going to need to be done before we can decide that we're not going to contract with a county or any other decision regarding sheltering the animals. Thank you very much. Thea Stewart, resident of Eureka, talked to the mayors in the past, city council from before, regarding city public works. Now, since I am visually impaired, legally blind, I walk everywhere. Every day, I come across sidewalks, overgrown greenery, things in the way daily. And before, I have done it a good number of times. I report it to City Public Works. The city, they, Sylvia, she goes out and she checks to make sure that the complaint is valid. She takes a picture, sends a letter to the property owner. 
they are given 15 days to clean up, say, their overgrown greenery, what might. Often it is not done, so the city engineers have to come and do the cleanup. Then they are given the property owner a fine. There have been a good number, let me tell you, houses that I have reported time after time. And many of them I go to the door and I mention to them, you know, your green reason the way, da la da. What I have stood up and mentioned before, which I strongly think the city must do, you should. First time a household is given a notice, overgrown greenery, for example, give them the 15-day notice. If that comes up again, say four, six months, a year later, I think the city should give them a fine and stop this 15-day notice. Because there are a few houses that I've gone by in the past week, ones I've reported time before. I just think if people were given a fine, maybe they would learn a lesson about trimming their greenery, and that could help with the city financing. Um, that's that. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, Theo. Next person, please step up. Hi there, I'm Shannon Townsend. I'm a volunteer with Humboldt Spay Neuter Network. I just wanted to second what Jennifer Raymond um, mentioned, that I'm very, very happy that um, the city of Eureka is going to continue the contract with the county's animal shelter. Um, I do promote uh, the idea of a city-run shelter if it's planned accordingly and appropriately. And I'm interested in talking with any one of you about that in the future if we wanted to save costs and also help Eureka, the city of Eureka's animals, um, in promoting spay and neutering as much as possible. Thank you. Thanks. <coughs> Leo Sears, city of Eureka. When your budget this year was first introduced, I stood before you, and the strongest terms I could think of told you this was no time to be slashing public safety. And I said it in about 15 different ways. But I ended by saying that I hoped when the day came around, I'd be able to stand here and thank you for making some changes and seeing further funding into public safety. Would I like to see more? Yes. Do I think you put enough back? No, I don't. But I stand here thanking you for what you've done. You're to be commended. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. Good, good evening, Mayor, Council, staff, and audience. My name is Ben Brown. I'm, I'm the director and curator of the Clark Historical Museum. Uh, on behalf of the Clark Museum's board of directors and staff, we acknowledge the difficult financial challenges facing the city of Eureka. Thank you for continuing to recognize the importance of preserving local history. For 35 years, the city and the Clark Museum have had a public-private partnership, which has allowed the museum to serve local groups which are important to this, uh, to this city, families, students, seniors, veterans, and tourists. 
Uh, we are committed to helping making the city of Eureka a better place by teaching important historical lessons to the workforce of the future and by serving um, tourists who come visit our area. While the future of the Clark Museum remains strong in our commitment to serving the community by preserving and presenting Humboldt County history, uh, through honoring and learning from the past will continue to guide us in the future. A major cut from the city will have significant um, impact on our operations. You know, with that said, we are trying to own up to our, uh, our own situation. Thank you, uh, Marion Brady and Kim Bergell for uh, coming and judging our barbecue competition. That really was a, a big success, and uh, we have very high hopes to grow that into the future. Um, uh, once again, though, it is our sincere regret that such major drastic cuts are in the works um, for such important city functions. Uh, the Clark Museum will continue to be a community partner and hopes to play an important role in keeping the city of Eureka a great place to live and a welcoming place for tourists. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. All right, is there anyone else who'd like to address the council uh, at this public hearing at this time? Okay, uh, seeing no one, we will return it to council for, go ahead, Marion. Thank you, Mayor. Um, one of uh, the things- Just a minute, Marion. I forgot to close the public hearing and oh, then sorry. return it to council. I'm sorry. <laughs> one of the things that I think has sort of been lost in some of the hubbub that's been going on about uh, whether this is Measure O or Measure Q is that when Measure O was passed or, or put on the ballot in 2010, it wasn't activated until April of 2011. So 11-12 was the first year. We are now in finishing the fourth year, and we have another fifth year of Measure O before we open up Measure Q. So I think that, you know, just in my talking with people in the community, a lot of people think that there was, um, there's kind of a misunderstanding. They think this is all about Measure Q and that we are somehow promised something for Measure Q and that we're reneging on that. But the thing is that actually having a vision for five years that holds true when we have unexpected PERS costs and unexpected or very higher than normal uh, workers' comp and higher than normal PERS, um, you know, trying to plan ahead for five years with the half-cent sales tax, you know, might have been smarter if we had done it three-quarters like Arcata did, but we did half-cent, and then and then knowing that it was going to run out in 2015-16, we brought it back, you know, for um, the vote for effective in 2016-17. So just so that people understand that, that this is still Measure O that we are operating under, and... Um, and at the end of four years, we're looking at a fifth year that costs went up and have been steadily on a steady trajectory up. Hopefully, it's going to level out, and hopefully our um, our sales tax, and which we're very much a sales tax-funded city, will um, will somehow be able to level out for 2016-17 when Measure Q actually does come into play. So that's one thing I wanted to say. And the other thing I wanted to say was that um, I, did, I did a little bit of looking at the what we're paying for animal control, and I'm very concerned that we're paying, that Eureka is paying more than its share for animal control uh, relative to how much Arcata is paying. We're paying approximately $500 per animal um, in um, 
for the number of animals, which was 332 animals, I think it was, that are co collected and taken up to the animal shelter up in McKinleyville per year. So we're paying almost $14,000 a month for this service. So it would be great if somehow we could see whether we're paying, we've ended up paying, and from the figures that I've seen so far, it looks like we're paying way more of our sh than our share. Um, so maybe that contract could end up getting renegotiated somehow because I think it's been since 2004 since we've actually had a price change in that contract. So just just so you know, it's a huge chunk of money that we're doing to maintain this um, animal. And I want to thank the Chief Mills for doing such a, uh, a sensible job of handling the uh, budget cuts that his department needed. So thank you very much. Um, I know we're cutting everywhere, uh, yeah, but uh, the marsh trash pickup by the volunteers and, and uh, uh, New Directions group has had a dumpster which cost us $3,500 a year for taking the trash away from the, the trash that they picked up. And I would hope that we can put that back in the budget because it's it's nothing if not symbolic of our partnership with the people who live down there in the marsh who are helping to clean up their own spaces and uh, New Directions who is also picking up trash from them cleaning up their own spaces and if we expect to work with these folks to get them to relocate out of the marsh we do have to keep a relationship with them and I think it, that it's a small price to pay uh, $3,500 to go ahead and put the dumpster back uh, near the marsh for, for them to put the trash in when they go out and, and pick it up. Any other comments by council? Natalie? I just have a small question about this uh, addendum that we received. Um, on page one, the uh, remainder of general fund changes, is that uh, the bracketed part, does that mean it's a negative or a positive? That means there's additional savings. There's still 15000 in savings. So. Is that something that we can top for the dumpster cost? You could. Um, I would really like to see the dumpster. Um, I think it's really worth the money. And I also, um, I apologize for not saying this when we had our budget study sessions, but I think that, uh, you know, the Eureka-specific organizations that we support um, and have supported for a long time, um, those being Keep Eureka Beautiful and the Clark Museum, um, I'm not devaluing the importance of those other organizations, but I think if, um, if a small portion of their funding could be restored, I think it would be worth it because proportionate to their operations, that would be uh, a pretty significant effect. So I wonder if other council members feel similarly. Go ahead, Melinda. Mm, I don't know where to begin, actually. This is really a, a, some difficult choices to make, but um, I still have to insist that uh, public safety remember remain at the top of our list. Um, while I do value many of these other um, programs and partnerships that we've had over the years, um, I think $15,000 would go a partial way back into the fire department's budget to, uh, in overtime to eliminate some 
of the hours of browning out. It could also go towards um, possible um, reinstatement of another uh, PSO position or creation of a new type of position, um, maybe even midway through the budget. Uh, so while, while I think those are important and the dumpster is important and um, I'm sure we are going to continue to find ways to um, continue to clean those uh, green belt areas up, um, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but I did, that has to occur. I, um, I would just say I would oppose any, any more increases to the outside groups um, that are already listed here. And I would like to see the um, remainder of the general fund changes go back into public safety. Any other comments? Go ahead. So I would have to disagree. <laughs> I think um, I like the idea of having the dumpster, which is 3,500. Um, giving 45 back to Clark Museum and, and supporting Keep Eureka Beautiful. And then whatever funds we have left, I think we could do with the fire department. Well, one of the things that I think that we agreed to during our study session was that we were going to look at these high cuts that we did now instead of the 10% that was originally proposed with, of course, the animal control being taken out, that portion, um, that we agreed that we were going to look at this in six months. And it's, it's maybe a six of one half a dozen of the other, that if we, if we were to just fund everybody at the, at the rate that was originally proposed uh, during the study sessions, that then we could in six months when we know what the final tally is, where we're heading with our sales tax income and our general fund money, that then we then could um, uh, take away the other 10% at that point. Or we give it, we take away the 20% now that we've done on all of those um, things like the senior, um, not the senior resource center because those got funded whole, wholly, but the other ones that got cut 20% and that we, you know, uh, just uh, re um, instead of taking the 20% away, we go ahead and um, and re re um, refund them that money if our tax situation, our money situation changes. So I think some of these issues are going to probably get resolved. Um, that I don't know that they have to be resolved today, tonight. That you know that we can that there's going to be changes going on. And this is a, a budget is like a floating document. It's it's a best estimate. It's not a cast in concrete. I think everybody who works with budgets knows that. But you you put your best estimate out. You trust some of your consultants. You hope that they've got it right. And then when the time comes, you take a look at what actually is, and then you and then you see where you can make adjustments. So that's what I think. Okay, Mayor Emor. Um, Greg, go ahead. Mayor, just a couple of items to respond back to as well. Had a couple notes which I forgot to um, deliver in my original. The other thing I wanted to hit on too was uh, from the discussion from the, the work session was to look at alternative financing for the zoo. And I want to make clear that that is something we will continue to do and we'll pull together uh, a committee to, to work with um, the Zoo Foundation and our council liaison 
as we already indicated, we, we have put in the fee, fee increase. The other thing that uh, came up in the study sessions, uh, too, was regarding the browning at Fire Station 4, which was about two-thirds of the time. Uh, Council also talked about looking at other options and certainly uh, having some discussion with our JPA members regarding that. Uh, I know the chief has looked into some of those options. I think we'll continue to do that. We're not ready to report on anything, certainly tonight, but in terms of uh, how that station can best be utilized in the future. I, I didn't realize John Shelter would be here tonight. We're meeting later this week staff-wise to talk about kind of the uh, trash cleanup issues in the marsh and the dumpster, and I think we were, we were going to try to address that at a, at a staff level with, with Mr. Shelter if we we could do that. Um, and I don't have necessarily recommendations to you. I know you've got a few different, you know, I think council concerns about whether or not to try to add back in some money for uh, any of the, such as the Clark Museum or um, Keep Eureka Beautiful, as well as then at the mid-year budget review time, uh, how we can utilize that to look at where we're at with tourism tax and sales tax. Um, and that's certainly always on, on the table um, in terms of whether or not there would be any additional funding. We had some similar discussion last year, I think, at the time we thought there, there might be, and that was proven not to be the case when we did the mid-year budget review. But certainly, uh, I think the other thing we talked about, too, was coming back on a quarterly basis with some financial updates just so that kind of really keep make sure the council is kind of fully up to date on, on just where we're at financially. The other thing I'd, and probably also remiss, this was the first year that we did a second year budget estimate. And we talked about this a fair number uh, during the budget sessions, that that second year estimate, which takes into account CalPERS costs, um, work comp, salaries, everything else, certainly showed that if we make those hard decisions this year with some personnel reductions, permanent reductions that are not just um, something only for a year, that we would not be in the same position in 2016-17 budget. And I think that was a pretty important component of this budget process. Linda, go ahead. So uh, since, since that, uh, I'm, I'm totally willing to uh, go with what we have for our budget now and let staff work out. The, the dumpster stuff and the trash stuff and, and see where we are come a, a quarter from now and if we can add some more money back into uh, uh, the Clark Museum or one of the locals, that'd be okay at that time, but I like where we are right here. Melinda and then Kim. Well, I don't really like where we are. I, I guess it's where we ended up. Um, and I, I just have to say that uh, I, I still want to support, I think if we look even halfway uh, mid-year through this budget and there are savings, that we have to go back and, and look at what we can reinstate in the police and fire department. I just want to re remind everybody that we are eliminating 13 jobs, some of which the people out there are going to lose their jobs that are watching us tonight. Three people are being demoted, and eight annuitants at EPD that provide really valuable service uh, that the sworn uh, full-time uh, officers don't have to do are being totally eliminated. 
So as long as we're eliminating jobs, people are losing jobs, and ending up in the unemployment line, I think our focus should be public safety. But in, again, um, we are where we are, and uh, if we're going to revisit this at mid-year, I, I can just guarantee you that that will be my mantra <laughs> in six months as well. So if we leave it as is, we're still going to have the remainder of general fund changes, so we'll have that kind of to have for the mid-year? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Thank you again, Frank. So one of the things that um, another misconception I think that people have about Measure O when it was uh, put on the uh, ballot, it did not say just police and fire. It said zoo parks and rec, street sweeping. That was actually in the ballot. So it's not like anybody bait and switched. That is not a true statement. And um, I think that if you go back and look at, uh, on your um, internet, you will look at that, um, at the wording for that ballot measure and see that uh, what was considered public safety was a little bit broader uh, category than just police and fire. So um, just, I just want to set the record straight on a couple of things here. And, um, and I have a lot of faith that the chief of police has got, um, that his reorganization, that's what's going to happen as a result of the changes that are being made, that it's going to um, give him um, a lot of um, ability to make a, a better uh, police department. And I think that the, what the fire department is doing um, in terms of browning out or closing, depending upon how that happens, um, and they're, you know, they're going to, they're actually going to end up making certain parts, if it comes out as I'm hoping, um, more efficient in terms of medical aid and that kind of thing, uh, as a result of their plan. So at least in, you know, that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. So I'm hoping it does. Thanks. I'd just like to really truly thank our staff. Um, this has been a really, really difficult process for I think all our departments um, and I wanted to thank you for, for making it work um, and applaud the council for having the courage to stick to the bottom line and I think we've, we've done that um, in the interests of being in better shape for the future um, and I'd also like to genuinely thank all the members of the public who have um, contacted me to express whatever their opinions are about this. Um, I feel like we have a really engaged community and and I, I have heard all of, all of those things uh, and taken them to heart. Uh, so I look forward to being in better shape next year and not, not having to go through all the pain next year. Um, and I apologize for bringing up $15,000 for us to disagree about. <laughs> I just saw it there and I thought, you know, where can it be used where it will be felt the most readily? Um, and so, you know, I leave that to staff to, to figure out. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with uh, looking at it uh, part of the way, uh, part of the year through. So thanks, folks. So with that, and I really am not happy with this budget. I didn't mean it that way. I would like to uh, move that we adopt a uh, resolution of the City of Eureka adopting the budget for fiscal year beginning July 1st, 2015, and adopt the resolution of the City of Eureka Public Financing Authority adopting the budget for the fiscal year beginning July 1st, 2015.
I'll second. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. Is there any further comment by council? All right, let's vote. Unanimous yes vote, motion carries. Okay, at this time then we'll move to the consent calendar and all matters listed under this category considered to be routine by the city council will be act enacted in one motion and pursuant to city council resolution 2011-22, if a member of the public would like an item on the consent calendar pulled and discussed separately, that request shall be made to a council member prior to a meeting. Unless a specific request is made, um, uh, by a council member, the consent calendar will not be read and there will be no separate discussion of these items. Is there not any item that needs to be pulled from the consent calendar? Yes, I thought that we were going to pull um, item 5. Item 5. Any others? Okay, I'll entertain a motion to approve uh, the rest of the consent calendar. I make a motion to approve the rest of the consent calendar. I'll second. All right, it's been moved and seconded. Go ahead and vote. Unanimous yes vote motion carries. Okay, we'll take up item five, which is the board, boardwalk banners honoring local military. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Uh, on May 19th, Council directed staff to work with the Eureka Masons to support their efforts in honoring active local military service members with member banners along the boardwalk. The Masons have determined that currently there are approximately 60 active service members from Eureka. The Masons have offered to work with the family members of the service members, obtain their approval, and pay for the banners. They will also keep up to date about any changes about who's active and who's not and make any necessary changes to those banners. Therefore, there will be no need for city funds to support the banners with the exception of staff time to help coordinate and install them. After first meeting with the Masons before the council presentation, staff looked at placing the banners on 4th and 5th Street. The problem with that location was that as it's in Caltrans right away, that's not necessarily a de deal breaker, but it, it does make it more difficult. But what made it a deal breaker is that the majority of our light poles throughout the city are owned by PG&E, and PG&E doesn't um, allow any hanging from their facilities. So because of these issues, staff looked at other areas of town for the banners. We then looked at Carson Park fencing, water reservoir fencing, Halverson Park, and boardwalk light poles all because the city owns all of those facilities. The Masons preferred the boardwalk. Staff agreed that the boardwalk would provide the most visibility when compared to the other locations, and staff agreed that it would provide, um, well, furthermore, that the boardwalk is somewhat of a celebration of the city's standing as a um, Coast Guard city. And with the Coast Guard cities and the signal flag spelling Eureka on the uh, makeshift map that's down on the uh, foot of F Street, felt it was appropriate to, to honor all military service members in that same location. So the boardwalk will still have ample poles remaining to continue with our current banner theme uh, to go along with the military um, service member banners. Staff have received some concerns relating to the militarizing, quote unquote, of public spaces and somehow promoting war through this program. The banners are a small gesture of appreciation for, um, from our local Mason group to honor the active local military women and men of this area. This program is solely for the purpose of honoring those lo local individuals and not a supportive gesture for war in any way. So with, staff, so with that, staff recommends council direct staff to work with the Masons um, to install the banners along the boardwalk honoring local service members. If you guys have any questions, I'm available. 
All right, thanks, Miles. Questions for Miles? Uh, Mary? Go ahead. Thanks again, Frank. Um, so um, there seems to be, um, you know, if they have 60 active members and if um, the way the boardwalk's configuration for the um, kind of historic banners that are currently there, that we've got two per pole, two two-sided, that means really they only need 15 poles to do the job on double-sided banners. And, and there's no reason not to do double-sided because that's what we're doing already for the boardwalk banners. So in, it's my opinion that, you know, like if you only need 15 poles, I'm just kind of surprised that we don't have uh, other areas of the city where we would have 15 poles that could create a kind of more instead of having these two different photographic message versus, you know, designy art type of message, because they're kind of conflicting looks. And so if you sprinkle them all together, it's, you know, just as a designer, which is my specialty, um, I, don't, I don't find that appealing um, visually. So it just seems like if we could work with them to find a place, they only need 15 poles, which would have a banner on, you know, a thing on both sides. And I know that the boardwalk's pre-set up for that, but um, but we've already, we've also done banners, I know we've done banners on 4th and 5th Street, so I don't know why it's suddenly become a problem. We we did Coast Guard, we did flags, I guess, maybe not banners. So I'm just curious about, you know, why we can't just do something, you know, along that line. So, so I think that's a question. <laughs> Trying to be a question. <laughs> so the the two sided um, option is is definitely an option. It's still yet to be determined when we go to the printer and determine. Obviously, we have done that with the um, current banners that are up there, and what so it should be able to do it with the with the service member banner. What do you mean when we go to the printer? I thought this was all being handled not by the city. Well, excuse me, when the Masons go to the printer. Okay. okay. Yes, <laughs> we're not paying for it, that's for sure. Yeah, we're not doing the printing, we're not making no. the banners, we're, we're all we will be some is using staff to install them in whatever location. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that we would not, you know, Never mind. I'll do that later. Okay. Well, I, I can. As far as the boardwalk's concerned, I mean, we can. I, I don't think the intent was to intermingle them. It was to maybe designate a location, maybe the foot of F Street. There's more than 15 light poles that are at the foot of F Street, and so you could do just the foot of F Street, and then you continue with the other banners at the C Street Plaza and along the rest of the boardwalk. So, I mean, we. Uh, there was no intention of intermingling them together. It would be a concentrated area somewhere down along there. We have well over 90 poles that are in that area. So there are a lot of different options as to where we can concentrate them. So there's no intent to intermingle them and, you know, go service member banner and regular banner. And you feel you've done, you know, you've looked everywhere possible. And it's, this is the only place to put them. No, this is not the only place to put them. Um, the Halverson Park, you know, along the trail in Halverson Park, there's well, there's 23 poles that the city owned along Halverson Park. Um, there was also, like I said, the, the, the Carson um, Park fence along H and I Street. There's there's the Eureka Reservoir. I think it, it was a matter of preference uh, that the boardwalk had high vis visibility, and since the Masons were putting up the money for this, we we took their their opinion into consideration. Okay. Any other questions? Go ahead. So. Uh, the ones that I saw that were examples from Fortuna said honoring the service and family of so-and-so and the service they're in, um, along with their official, uh, you know, portrait. 
Um, so they're not, they would, they would be in that, uh, they would be similar. Is that correct? Yes, that's the intent to mimic the <coughs> other banners that were presented by the Masons. And is there the possibility of, of using a similar color scheme or uh, some kind of design elements from the existing banners to have some kind of look of continuity there? Is that up to, I mean, can we give a preference in that regard? <laughs> I can't speak for the Masons, but I don't see them having a problem with trying to mimic what we have down there. Sure. Because I do think it would be nice, you know, for there to be a clear difference in the types of banners, but something that, that kind of goes with the, we have a certain theming to all of the elements, you know, in, in Old Town. Uh, I don't, yeah. I, I think they're here tonight, so the public comment, you can speak with Dale or Emmanuel. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Excuse me. So what would be the, um, let's see, the time on that. So I guess what I'm saying is um, could we do an introductory, you know, try it out for a year kind of thing? Or is this something that it's there, it's there forever, um, this is how it goes? So it would all be based on council's direction. So however council votes and chooses to do it, uh, we could do it as a preliminary thing and come back to council and get feedback from council on how they want to proceed after that. It's up to council. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you. We'll open the item for public discussion. Is there anyone present that would like to comment on the uh, item, agenda item? All right. Seeing no one, we will close the public comment period and return to council for whatever action you deem necessary. Go ahead. All right. Start down here. Natalie first. <laughs> I saw some stirring in the back of the room, so I didn't know whether the uh, local lodge was prepared to, to speak about this item again or, or not. Uh, I just I saw movement and then <laughs> we closed public comment. Hi, my name is Alan Nielsen. Did, if you had any questions, it seemed to go pretty smooth with what was said already, but uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have uh, regarding the, the program or what we were hoping to do. Uh, you had mentioned, I think you had asked uh, color schemes, and we had planned to to duplicate what was done in um, Fortuna. I don't know if you saw those with the, the green, that color scheme is something that we were hoping to do, but that certainly can be changed, absolutely. We have sort of a maritime blue scheme going on, it seems, down on the waterfront here. but. I mean, I liked the ones that I saw as an example. Uh, you know, I, I thought they were nice. So. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? So are you kind of married to the idea of the boardwalk, or would you be interested or open-minded to look at a different location? I think we're open-minded to okay. it. We certainly like the, uh, the boardwalk, a lot of visibility, and sure. uh, to honor those folks I think is important. Mm -hmm. um, so. Okay. That was our thoughts, uh -huh. but yeah, absolutely, we're open to uh, to other ideas as well. Okay. Great, thank you. Sure, certainly, Melinda. Well, I just wanted to say I missed the first discussion because I was absent at that council meeting. But I think this is a fantastic idea, and I just really like to thank your organization for you know stepping up and 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 coming up with it and paying for it. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see it done in the most cost-effective way as well, and 
putting them on our poles that have existing hardware for that makes makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, I'm I'm not in the design business, so I leave that up to the experts. Um, and however it fits in down there, but I think the boardwalk is a fabulous place for the visibility and um, honoring our troops. And I also think it should last as long as we have troops. Yeah. Then the thought process was also that when when uh, a person finished their term in the military, then we would give them their banner that they could keep, and and then uh, you know as new folks come in, obviously uh, you know one way to family members they'll see them and ask questions and then you know certain folks won't want their banners up and others will so it's it's not like we're going to come with 60 banners at one time uh, we were thinking maybe 10 or 15 or 20 and and then kind of go from there oh, okay so you asked the permission of the of the family and the service person that's in correct there yes I see. so what in Fortuna what was your ratio of those that wanted to versus those pretty that pretty much everyone families would contact contacted us and then uh, you know we would get the photographs and put it together great so well it's a great idea and I applaud you for it well thank you very much Thanks. another question for you Certainly. because of the fact that um, having blank banner backs doesn't doesn't really work down there you have traffic going both it's not like a one-way street where you see I don't know how it worked in Fortuna, but um, that doesn't kind of work to have blank backs. And it sounds well, like thought, if you're doing the thought one process, time, I think, was two-sided. So it would be the same. You'd have the the, the same uh, man or woman uh, service member would be on the on the one banner. It would be on the front and the back. Oh, and that was what we thought. So you're really going to need all. 60 well it, it, poles you know i mean i mean if that's the plan or if or, you put two on one you had mentioned i thought two yeah that's why it's, it's that, yeah i would have to i think now. and then the final design i think would be 30 with the schematic of the pole and the fixture for the pole um because i understand they're already existing the fixtures for the miles would have that answer okay some of them are there. I don't know that they're all there. So, yeah, they all do have the attachments on the poles that we can put it on. And if there's a concern about, you know, you want to, obviously they want to give them to the, the military service member when they're not active anymore. So I'm sure we could come up with something where they're one-sided, but we put them on one side of the pole with the blank side facing each other so they wouldn't be attached together. So we could rig something up so that they could be separate, but flush together so that you know they can still come apart for when that person leaves service so that we can give it to the military member so it would still only take up the 30 poles if everybody is participating well actually i was looking at 15 poles oh, excuse me 15 because they're on both sides yes yeah. 15 yeah. yes yeah. so if that doesn't work um are there 60 poles available at halverson park no, we would only need 15 if we did it that way. And there's 23 that are available. And it would be, you know, you're counting the ones that are also at the small boat launch because the, the trail goes on the opposite side of the small boat launch. And so it would go. And, you know, it would, with the development of our waterfront trail, I think it's going to be a lot more visible down there too. I don't know if it would quite reach the boardwalk area, but I, I think that that portion of the trail is going to be the most desirable portion of the trail when it's complete. 
badly. So my understanding is we have a pole and we have a sign on either side of it, and each of those signs is two-sided. Is that correct? Correct. So, so you have four. a pole. Yep. You have a pole, and then you have attachments that go each way from the bottom and each way from the top, and so you can put. You don't get to the boardwalk much, do you? I do. I go get ice cream like every day. I need to stop it, actually. Uh, I, that's what I thought I remembered by just checking. So the ones in Fortuna are along a road, um, and they're intended to be seen. There's a, a scale to be seen while driving. Um, and my only thought about the placement of them is is just that while – this is a pedestrian area, so we're walking, or primarily pedestrian, maybe at the foot of F Street there's the parking lot, but um, while walking I think there's a little bit more time to observe them and, and they might not need to be double-sided um, for the same service member, which might save you money and, uh, and you know, simply be a little bit easier for our staff to place, um, a little bit less time involved. And so that would be my preference if, uh, you know, if, if you're willing to do that, but ultimately, you know, I, I leave it up to the staff and masons who are paying for it but um you know that i think that that would still give ample time to observe the the signs so uh, i think it i don't think the cost would be that much more because as mary can attest to they when you put them back to back like that the the printing cost is a good majority of it mm -hmm. so if you're only you're still only printing two sides and then the the material itself is much thicker so that you don't see that bleed through so if you had a thinner material and did one side of a thinner material, one side of a thinner material, and put them back to back. I don't think that the printing cost would be significantly more, but that would be up to the masons to determine. Okay. Well, I guess I'll leave it to you. That that would just be my thought about the difference between the Fortuna placement and the Eureka placement. So, um, so what I'd like to see is I really like the idea of the Halverson Park placement, mostly because it it has it'll have its own integrity, and and we have we're going to be having all sorts of events down there. It's it's going to be um, I think it'll be more pleasing. Uh, you wouldn't really have to worry about the blue scheme because you're not having to deal with the light poles that are blue and all that. And I think that if you did have to buy the um, the, the the brackets. I think they're pretty reasonable. They wouldn't have to be the same kind of brackets. We have these historic brackets. Are they the historic ones down in Halverson? Yeah, the ones that we got quotes for were, it's from the same company, but they don't have that same blue kind of yeah. maritime theme to them. <clears throat> There's different options. They vary anywhere from 65 to $80 uh, a bracket. Okay, because you know it seems to me that they're you know they're just ubiquitous everywhere. You know these brackets to be attached to poles. So um, I, I was questioning what the poles look like. I don't remember the poles at Halverson. They're square brown poles. Okay, so like the '80s. Yeah. So anyway, it just seems like it would be. <laughs> it would be. A, I think that would be a better option. And um, and like you said, that some of the visioning that we did and some of the plans um, for that waterfront area, it's going to be a lot more um, uh, exciting there. And I just like the green sword. You know, there's all the green, and then you've got the flags. It just seems like it'd be a, a better aesthetically. I think it'd be better. That's my opinion. Um. So Miles. Um you mentioned the cost of the brackets. Uh, in the notes here, you say it could cost uh, about $4,000, which would include the brackets and staff cost to install them? Yeah, it would take uh, four staff probably a day to install all the brackets and probably a similar, similar amount of time to 
install the banners themselves. So whether you use the board, you're still going to have about two thousand, excuse me, about a thousand dollars in staff time at the boardwalk as well because you're going to be installing them. But you would add another day to that to put the brackets on there as well. Okay, and and that is proposed to be absorbed into your budget and not paid for by the Macy's? For the staffing, yes. And, you know, like I said in the notes is that, you know, we only have three harbor staff. It'd probably take four, so we'd get somebody from parks or from facilities to help out with it. Or we tap the enterprise funds and do that. <laughs> Just joking. We would never do that. Um, I guess I'm concerned if there, there's a... Is there $4,000 in the parks and rec budget to cover this expense if we move it, move the placement to Halverson? Uh, we obviously don't have very much money, but it would be a one-time expenditure and it wouldn't be ongoing. I think it would be more concerning if we were to be paying for the banners and replacement of banners and, and committing to that. The, the brackets are pretty sturdy. It would be a one-time cost of $1,000 and then it would be staff time. Doing it, and we could even look into using some temp staff from recreation to, to help out with it to save um, costs. Okay, I mean, you know, we just got finished nickel and diming some other organizations, so I just wanted to raise the question and make sure that um, we're not increasing that too, in addition to what we just did. So thank you. All right. I any more questions or comments? Well, we have a motion someplace then? I thought we did. Did we do come? Yeah, we did. Well, I'll call you up. I'm Dale Maples, and uh, I'm not a Mason, but uh, I sure am uh, appreciative of their willingness to uh, pay for the banners. Um, I just wanted to go on record in saying that I'm actually in favor of the boardwalk area. I think the traffic there is, uh, it'd probably be a little bit heavier at this time. And, um, you know, I think uh, in talking with some of the staff that some of the banners may need to be replaced that are down there now. And that could cost as much as $10,000 to replace those banners that are down there now and maybe worn over the next couple of years. So the way I see it, we're saving the city 10000 bucks, And that, I think that'd pay for about three of those dumpsters you're trying to get back into the budget there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and my first concern when, uh, when Miles and I were vetting the area down there with the traffic, I, I shared your concern, Marion. I thought, man, that is going to be impacting with that many banners there for military. But then when I realized how many light poles there are down there, and that we could actually put them on two sides and out of the 90 light poles that are down there, am I right, 90 light poles down there? That we would only be using 15 and they could actually be, they could be on the, you know, as you're entering down on the F Street Plaza in that area and then, and then the banners that are, that have the, the uh, maritime theme that are on the boardwalk now could stay. I think that they would work well together in that area. So I just wanted to go on record and, and bet that, uh, I would like for them to stay in the boardwalk area for as many people to see them as possible. This area, this idea I had when I drove through Fortuna, it impacted me. I have a son that's a Marine, 19 years old, and uh, as I drove through Huntington Park or Huntington Beach a couple of weeks ago, and they had banners on their streets, 
and Palm Springs has banners on their streets. I drove through there a couple of weeks ago, and in Roner Park as well. It is quite a ceremony when they hang these banners, and the, and the families are there for the hanging, and also for the banners when they come down and they're handed to those parents. I think it's a great way for our city to connect. We have all kinds of ways to, to not connect. You know, we are all differ ideology, and we get ourselves into these compartments, but our boys and girls are a way that we, our city does connect. I had lunch today with the school superintendent, and we talked about how a lot of our kids, a lot, we drive by four or five schools to get our kids to the school that we want them to go to, and our schools have kind of lost that being the center of the community. And this is just one way that, that we, one thing that we can identify with is our, our boys and girls that are serving, and I think we, we have that all in common. I'd like for them to stay on the boardwalk. That's what I want to say. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I happen to agree with that. Um, I, I think that's a, a focal point. Um, you know, we do have the uh, sort of the Coast Guard city theme thing going down there, and, you know, Coast Guard's a big part of our military as well, and I, I like how it all kind of comes together there and, and the visibility. I just think it's a, an outstanding idea, and I really... I really thank you guys for bringing this to us. And with that, I would like to move staff recommendation. Second. All right. We've been moved and seconded. Is there further comments? Go ahead. So I've heard both of you talk about, um, I think these signs are, they're a fine idea. I think they're really great for the families and for people to honor the people. I agree. Um, pedestrian areas, I'm not so sure. And I've heard both of you talk about how they're on streets. You've seen them on streets. Fortuna, you saw them on the street. Huntington Beach, you saw it on the street. Ronald Park, you saw it on the street. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think they should be on the boardwalk. Um, I think that they should be either on a street or at Halverson. Um, Halverson, the great thing about Halverson is that there are a lot of events that will be happening there. Um, it'll be a concentrated area. They could do celebrations there. There's so many different opportunities. So um, though I do support the signs, I do not support the boardwalk. I don't really have a preference as to Halverson Park boardwalk, but I, I wanted to thank the Masons. And um, as a reserve member of the military, I can say that on the few occasions when I'm in uniform and out and about around town, there's a lot of anti-military sentiment in this community, and I understand it. Um, but having the experience of, um, even though we're discouraged from going to the grocery store in our uniform, things like that, having interacted with people um, while I'm in uniform, um, you know, seeing the face of the person behind the organization or within the organization and uh, you know, really seems to break down barriers and um, heal some of the mistrust. And so I think having the faces of the local um, service members and knowing that they are from here, um, you know, could be a way to, to increase understanding. So uh, at, with that, I, I'm in support and thank you for, for coming forward with this. Any further comments, Marion? I'd like to like say that I do support the, this idea of going forward. I do not believe that it belongs right there um, with the 
at the entrance to the boardwalk. Um, I think that we've spent a lot of money doing signage, having the, C, the F Street Plaza, all of that, that theme, those color themes, and uh, just aesthetically, they need to be in their own space, which I think is um, would will be beautiful in its own right. Um, I'm not sure what's happening with our um, uh, that green area that the um, uh, the railroad owns. I don't know what's going on with that, but um, you know the park-like area that where they cleaned up after GNR Metals was there. But um, so I'm not going to support it just for that reason. I just don't think it belongs on the boardwalk, just aesthetically. So, but I support the idea. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah, sure. So, Miles, what's the issue with having them on 4th and 5th? They're going to get the greatest visibility there. The, the problem is, is that you deal with Caltrans and, mm -hmm. and their encroachment permit things, which is not a total obstacle, but the light poles themselves are owned by PG&E. They're not owned by the city. And so when we've made requests in the past for that, it's not been greeted with positive feedback. This is a whole different animal, though. I mean, this is supporting the troops. This is something that you know, isn't just like a bike fair or something like that. I mean, this is sure. something I think a lot of people could get behind, and that would give a lot more visibility. I, if that's what council asking. chooses to do, we can we can definitely look into it. Okay, we got a motion and second. Any further comments? Let's go ahead and vote. Three yes votes. Councilmember Brady and Burgell dissenting. Motion carries. Okay, we've had a request for a short break, so we're going to take a break before we go into uh, the uh, ordinances resolutions. Okay, we're reconvening your city council, and we're moving to item... Um, Number six, Department Reorganization Ordinance, and I guess you're going to handle that. I am. Um, the city manager, I'm sure, will be back in and add his comments right. to this. Um, but this is being proposed as a result of the 2015-2016 budget. Uh, the Eureka City Charter, Section 607, provides that the council, quote, shall by ordinance provide for the form of organization through which the functions of the city are to be administered. The draft ordinance before you, which is Bill Number 887-CS, provides for the reorganization of several departments in conjunction with the organizational recommenda recommendations being made by the city manager through the 2015-2016 budget process. Um, some of those changes include uh, change in the designation for the Community Development Department to Development Services, specification of the duties and responsibilities of the Director of Development Services, position and the department, authorizing the movement of the building department into the Department of Public Works, amendment to the Public Works Department duties and responsibilities due to the movement of the building department into Public Works, and the creation of a separate Parks and Recreation Department. In addition, the proposed ordinance provides for consistent administrative policies and procedures for each department, such as the performance of duties, the responsibilities to the city manager, authority over employees within the department, cooperation with other departments and record keeping. It also authorizes the city manager with the approval of the council 
to contract out services if the need arises. And it also codifies past reorganizations. The creation of the public and parks and recreation department and director position, which was, I think, created over a year ago now. Specification of the duties for the parks and recreation department. And also, it abolishes the Eureka Redevelopment Agency due to the dissolution of the re redevelopment by the state. In order to comply with Section 607 of the Charter and codify the organizational structure of the city, I would recommend that the Council introduce waive reading and read by title only, Bill Number 887-CS. Thank you. Questions for staff? All right. Actually, yes. Okay. Do we need to read the entirety of the um, chapters and sections in this uh, motion. That's just a general question, I suppose. We do. Okay. Yes, I, I shortened it. <laughs> <laughs> but we do need to make it in the motion. I've always been wondering that. Thank you. Yeah. So in the, the contracting out portion of, of the revision here uh, it would still have to be with the approval of the council that we can't just uh, city managers can't contract out city services except with the approval of the council no the language specifically states with approval of the council okay thank you any other questions for staff all right thank you very much we'll open the item for public discussion is there anyone present that would like to comment on the agenda item all right, close, we'll close public comment period and return to council. Linda. If there's no discussion, I'll take a stab at it. Uh, introduce, I would move to introduce wave reading and read by title only bill number 887CS, an ordinance of the city of Eureka, adding, amending, deleting title three, chapter 32, sections 32.20, fire department, Title Three, Chapter Thirty Three, Sections Thirty Three Point Zero Forty Five through Thirty Three Point Zero Forty Six, Building Department. Title Three, Chapter Thirty Three, Sections Thirty Three Point Zero Seventy through Thirty Three Point Zero Seventy One, Community Development. Title Three, Chapter Thirty Three, Sections Thirty Three point zero eight eight through thirty three point one oh two Department of Public Works Title Three Chapter thirty three sections one hundred through thirty three point one oh one redevelopment agency and Title Three Chapter thirty three sections thirty three point one zero zero through one oh two Department of Parks and Recreation of the Eureka Municipal Code. Is there a second? I'll second. All right, it's been moved and seconded. Is there any further discussion or comment on the item? All right, vote. Unanimous yes vote. Motion carries. Okay, it takes us to report and action items. Item number seven, sea level, sea level rise adaption planning update. The county received a grant for sea level rise studies 
and uh, those studies have been led by Alderon Laird. Um, with his help, we also received a grant to do similar studies more in depth around the city of Eureka, and that's what he's going to be presenting tonight. The study more or less looks at how the city of Eureka is vulnerable to sea level rise. And about one of his key findings is that about 70% of Humboldt Bay is surrounded by man-made structures such as levees and dikes. And regardless of sea level rise, our communities are vulnerable to um, changes in the, uh, the tides there. And so Alderon will show exactly what that means. Um, and so with that, I'm going to introduce Alderon Laird, and he'll talk about our current grant program. Thank you, Rob. Um, and thank you, Mayor and City Council, for having me here tonight. So, uh, so as Rob mentioned, um, the city received a grant uh, from the Ocean Protection Council in 2014. We were one out of uh, we were one out of seven entities. Uh, there's 76 uh, entities in California that qualified for that grant, and only seven received that grant in 2014. And we were one of them, uh, the only one north of San Francisco. So I think that we did quite well on that. This photograph is uh, the Tulawat uh, uh, World Renewal Ceremonial Site for the Wiat, and it's illustrating what uh, roughly one foot of sea level rise would look like on Humboldt Bay. So it gives you sort of a visual to see what things look like. Um, as Rob mentioned, I'm the sea level rise adaptation planner for the Humboldt Bay Sea Level Rise Adaptation Planning Project and the lead planner for uh, your local coastal program update to address sea level rise. And uh, the grant that we received from Ocean Protection Council is well, uh, certainly based on the foundation that was created with the regional collaboration effort that underwent from 2010 to 2015. Your city council was one of the endorsers and supporters of that grant when we went for phase two funding in uh, 2013. And your city uh, staff has also been active participant throughout the whole process of the regional collaboration. And so uh, just to give you a little bit of a historical context of Humboldt Bay to, uh, to show you where we started from. Um, historically, the bay, this is the uh, illustration from the 1870 U.S. Coast Survey uh, map of Humboldt Bay uh, overlaid onto an air photo. And you can see that roughly 60% of the bay is open water and mud flat and 40% is salt marsh. And the shoreline was about 60 miles. Uh, we did an inventory and mapping to, to pick what current conditions are. And what we found is uh, roughly 90% of the salt marsh is gone on Humboldt Bay. Um, and the shoreline has increased to 102 miles. And most importantly, as Rob mentioned earlier, 77 miles of the shoreline is artificial. And why that's important is that if those shoreline structures aren't maintained, they'll fail to do what they were designed to do, which was to hold the tides back from the lands that are behind those shorelines. And they would be tidally inundated. And unfortunately, on Humboldt Bay, over the course of 100 years or so that all those structures were built, there's no central baywide district that's charged with managing and maintaining the shoreline. It's left up to all the individual property owners. So as a result, there's very little coordination. And when we looked at how the shoreline was made up, what we found is the dominant shoreline structure on the bay are earthen dikes that were built between 1890 and 1910, about 41 miles. Um, and we looked at um, the shoreline as to whether or not it was eroding due to wave action and the elevation of the shoreline in relationship to the, the monthly high tide. And we wanted to identify what zones and segments would be vulnerable to being overtopped or breached uh, by two feet of high tide. 
we can receive two feet of high tide on an annual basis during our king tide events if we have a storm surge or an El Nino occasion. So it's well within our own tidal regime. But we came up with essentially 26 miles is highly vulnerable today under existing conditions uh, to being breached uh, or overtopped. That was sort of a, an, an epiphany in looking at that. What we realized is that vulnerable, vulnerability exists today, not with two feet of sea level rise or three feet of sea level rise, but it exists today if those shoreline property owners don't maintain those dikes and those dikes breach, approximately 9,000 acres of former salt marsh would be subject to being tidally inundated, and everything that we have built on those lands would be subject to tidal inundation. So we really have a lot of lands that are vulnerable to breaching. It's not theoretical. It's been happening over the last 15 years with increasing frequency. This happened in uh, just last year. Uh, a dike uh, where a tide gate was just failed and blew out, and it uh, essentially tidally flooded about 40 acres of land. They put in a water bag and then pumped the water out of it, and they're trying to repair and uh, rehabilitate the area. Uh, but this is the type of thing that we're looking at occurring today. So just giving you a little bit of context of, um, you know, the state is, uh, I think, a leader nationwide in looking at sea level rise vulnerability and trying to get coastal communities to look at what they can do about it. And so what really is sea level rise is, you know, it's climate change and global temperatures increase, water expands uh, just like it does in a pot on your stove. If you heat it up, it takes up more room. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is you assume the ground stays where it is and the water goes up. But in our case, because we live in a tectonically active area on the Cascadia subduction zone, the ground on Humboldt Bay is actually going down. It's being pulled under uh, by one of the plates uh, in the triple junction. And we've actually lost elevation, almost a foot of elevation over the last century. So there's been about seven to eight inches of increase in ocean elevation and we've dropped about 11 inches in ground elevation. So we actually have the highest rate of sea level change on the west coast because of the tectonic activity. Can I ask a question at that point? Yes. I've heard that before, and I'm just wondering how that was measured 100 years ago and compared to what we're measuring today with the accuracy we have today versus what we had maybe 100 years ago? It's based on the tidal measurements at the uh, federal tidal gauges. Uh, Crescent City is a gauge that's about 90 years in, in, uh, in time. The one on Humboldt Bay is about 35 or 40 years in time. And so the engineers that developed the tidal modeling for Humboldt Bay projected the tidal elevations going back and going forward to come up with uh, what the tidal elevations would be here. There's a local group, it's called the Cascadia Geosciences, who've been studying the rate of subsidence on Humboldt Bay for the last five years, and they're the ones that came up with the rate of subsidence or subduction that's occurred on Humboldt Bay. I understand they're going around and surveying all the original survey monuments that were put in in the 1850s to see how they've changed and correlating that with the tidal gauge record. I'm not an engineer, I'm not a planner, I can't give you all the detail or the nuances, but looking at the tidal record, the state scientists and our local scientists all came to the same conclusion that besides the ocean expanding, the ground has been dropping. In Crescent City, it's the opposite. The ground has actually gone up, and so it's gone up more than eight inches, so there's no net change in Crescent City because that part of the Cascadia Plate is rising where our part is being pulled under, So, it, which means at some point it might release and then it will change elevation again. So, so sea level rise on Humboldt Bay is two things. It's the ocean elevation going up, but it's also the ground dropping. So we have a 
sort of a double whammy on Humboldt Bay. So looking at sea level rise and what it means to the city of Eureka, how is it going to impact the city of Eureka? Well, the primary uh, impact that we would feel immediately is if the shoreline isn't maintained and we have breaches such as this instance up in Arcata Bay, uh, the, the dike is overtopped or it's breached, over 400 acres is flooded, and so on a daily basis the tides will go in and out, the salt water will burn the grass, won't be able to be used for pasture. In the back of that picture up near the, the top is... Um, is uh, the Humboldt Bay Municipal Water District's water line. You can see up at, uh, up at the top going across the diagonal. It'd be really difficult for them to maintain or repair an emergency break in that water line if it was tidally inundated on a daily basis. So if we look at the historical legacy that we've inherited of diking off about 9,000 acres of uh, former tidelands that we've used for agricultural lands and we put California uh, Highway 101 and a lot of underground utilities, if the dikes all failed at once, the footprint of the bay would expand 52% overnight, essentially, with the daily tides. If we add in sea level rise that we expect by, uh, say, 2050, um, we would get about 12% more expansion of the bay due to sea level rise and then progressively up to 2070 and, and 2100. What this is illustrating is the biggest change in the tidal footprint on Humboldt Bay would be associated just from the bay reclaiming the former tidelands that have been diked off, not from sea level rise. So really, we don't have a sea level rise issue other than it puts that much more pressure on the shorelines that were built over 100 years ago. We have a maintenance problem in that those 41 miles of dikes aren't being maintained by anybody in a central or coordinated fashion. So where would uh, sea level rise uh, impact the city of Eureka? Here's the urban core of Eureka, uh, and the areas in blue show you the areas that would be potentially inundated uh, in 2030 and 2050. And so you can see there is a scattering of the waterfront west of Broadway that would be impacted. Uh, obviously, the islands would be impacted. But not a lot of city of Eureka would be impacted because it's on an elevated terrace. But to the north of Eureka, we have the Eureka Slough uh, Complex, which is a low-lying area that used to be salt marsh that's been diked off. And you can see that if the dikes or the shorelines uh, were breached or, or compromised, that's what would be flooded uh, in, by 2030 or today. That's the area that's vulnerable. So anything that's located in that area is vulnerable in the short term. We're not talking long term. And then to the south of Eureka, we have the Elk River Slough and Valley area. So to the north and the south of Eureka, we have low-lying former tide areas that are highly vulnerable, while the Eureka waterfront is less so. So when might we expect uh, sea level rise to start impinging on the city? Um, the engineers that developed the tidal modeling specifically for Humboldt Bay rather than using a regional model that wasn't specific to our area came up with a relative sea level rise, which takes into account the rate the ground is dropping as well as the rate that the ocean is expanding. And the projected, the high projection we're looking at for 2030 is about a foot of change in tide elevation. And this is the monthly high tide we're talking about. By 2050, we're looking at about two feet. In 2100, it's projected to be as much as five feet. So we took these thresholds into account. 
when we started looking at what things might be impacted by sea level rise in the city of Eureka to figure out when they would be impacted and that hopefully will guide us into which are the priorities for addressing and when to address them. So looking at what's going to be impacted, obviously the most vulnerable area on, uh, on around Eureka is the Eureka Slough complex or the bottomlands and the Elk River bottomlands. These former tidelands that have been diked off are used for agriculture. They're also used uh, by wildlife agencies. Department of Fish and Wildlife has uh, the Face Slough Wildlife Unit in the city of Eureka. There's not many cities that actually have a federal wildlife uh, unit within the city boundaries, but it's valuable habitat for Aleutian geese, which has been delisted because of the habitat that's available on Humboldt Bay for grazing. But more importantly for the city is, is that these low-lying areas is where we put all our underground utilities. The city's municipal water lines, the two pipes that come from the Arcata region and come down to Eureka, go right across the Eureka Slough bottoms. They're all in that uh, low-lying area. They're underground. They wouldn't necessarily be infiltrated with salt water because they're, they're sealed pipes. But um, those pipes need to be maintained on a regular basis, and if you had to do that in a tidal environment, it would make doing emergency repairs really difficult. You know, City of Eureka maybe has five days of water supply. If the repairs took longer than that, it would have to use its inner ties from the Humboldt Community Services District or Humboldt Bay Municipal Water District. PG&E put their gas lines along uh, Highway 101 and traverse the Elk River Slough Bottom and the Eureka Slough Bottom. Uh, the city has uh, sewer lift stations over in the Jacobs Avenue area. Uh, so there's a lot of underground utilities. And of course, Caltrans maintains US Highway 101, which traverses those very same bottom lands. So they're not just agricultural grazing areas. They happen to be uh, where we have all our primary utilities in the right of way. So, so who is going to address that? It comes down to the city. Uh, the city is the land use authority. Uh, and during your local coastal program update, the funding from the Ocean Protection Council is funding doing a risk analysis, looking at critical assets that are vulnerable uh, to the sea level rise scenarios or existing conditions. And then once we've identified what assets are uh, at risk, when are they gonna be at risk, we are to develop adaptation strategies for those critical assets, and then lastly, propose draft land use policies to help protect the city and its assets from sea level rise. So the critical assets at risk that we've been analyzing, the most important ones are the underground utilities, uh, the wastewater system, stormwater, the municipal water, but also the energy underground, the gas lines, uh, the surface uh, 12VK um, uh, distribution poles, all our optical fiber and communication systems, our transportation, whether it's Murray Field Airport, our surface highways and streets, and, um, and our marine or waterfront, our industrial cargo docks, commercial fishing uh, fleet uh, facilities, and recreational facilities. And then the coastal resources, uh, all of the city's agricultural lands are vulnerable to conversion. And um, the environmentally sensitive habitat areas that the Aleutian geese use and others, and as well as public access. And lastly, there's contaminated sites that we've looked at. So one of the things that um, uh, we uncovered or, or became obvious in doing the analysis of assets is the city of Eureka only owns some of the assets. You own the wastewater system, the municipal water system, and then the stormwater system. You don't own the gas uh, system or the fuel depot, fuel terminal that Chevron has, or the communication facilities. All of those critical assets are important to the city, but they're not owned or controlled by the city. 
And so we looked at assets based on ownership also. There's state-held assets such as Caltrans and the Broadway and the 4th and 5th Street couplet that goes through the city of Eureka. Um, and then there's private assets, PG&E with their gas line distribution system, the power plants within your planning area, um, the electrical distribution system on the poles and electrical towers, the communication systems. There's more than almost a dozen different communication uh, companies out there. One of the things that we ran across is, is that it was extremely difficult to find out where any of these private assets are located. We couldn't get GIS shape files from PG&E to show us where the gas lines are to figure out when they, uh, they, where they might be vulnerable or when they might be vulnerable based on sea level rise. It ultimately came down to uh, one of your staff people contacting the Homeland Security Administration and the city of Eureka actually registered with the Security Administration, has an account and set up uh, an appointment where they actually showed us where all those underground utilities were. But we weren't able to get the GIS shape files from them. We have to do screen captures and digitize the maps ourselves in order to figure out where those assets were. But while it was creative, it's sort of unfortunate that we don't have that kind of cooperation. So one of the basic strategies uh, that was developed on the regional planning effort and is applicable to the city of Eureka is that we really can't look at sea level rise and its vulnerability or develop adaptation strategies if we just look by property ownership or, or land use jurisdictions. We need to look at essentially planning units, hydrologic planning units, the way the water flows dictates what is all in the same common uh, vulnerability or when it's going to be at risk. So like in the Eureka Slough complex, we've broken it up into subunits. The Eureka Face Slough subunit that you see at the top is one of the most important uh, subunits on the entire uh, Humboldt Bay, and it's probably the one most at risk on Humboldt Bay. It has the Murrayfield Airport as the Jacobs Avenue commercial area. It has uh, Highway 101, one of the most vulnerable sections of Highway 101. It has PG&E's gas lines. It has the city's uh, sewer lines and lift stations. Uh, there's surface streets that the city and the county owns. Um, we have a wildlife refuge that's critical for a Lucian goose uh, habitat, and it's uh, in a vulnerable state. So these are the type of planning areas that we're looking at in trying to develop adaptation strategies. So that's really a quick summary of what we've been doing with the local coastal program grant to assess sea level rise vulnerability and asset risks. And we're just about ready to complete the assets risk uh, report uh, to bring it to you and make it available for review. And then we'll be moving on into developing adaptation strategies and, um, and draft pol land use policies later this year. So if you have any questions on that. I, well, I just have one quick comment. That's a beautiful picture of the Carson Mansion at sunset. <laughs> it's actually sunrise. At sunrise. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Okay, questions uh, right now? Mary? Um, Mr. Laird, is there any chance that uh, we can repurpose our dredge materials to help fortify dikes? Yes. In fact, uh, the Humboldt Bay Harbor District received a grant from the State Coastal Conservancy to look at, at reusing its dredge materials. I worked on that project. And we identified some pilot sites uh, where we're, 
One of the problems when you diked off the agricultural lands that were salt marsh, when the salt marsh decomposes and goes away, the ground actually shrinks, and it's shrunk by about three feet. So if, we, if they get exposed to tide water, they won't be salt marsh, they would be mud flat. So one of the things that we thought to make the agricultural lands more sustainable is if we can bring fill in, like dredge material, and build the ground surface back up, it could keep the agricultural lands above the rising groundwater, which is responding to sea level rise. The problem is, is that we don't have enough fill on Humboldt Bay to, to treat all the areas, so we need to select the priority ones. And so there's a couple of pilot projects that are being pursued. The big um, hurdle to deal with that is we had to characterize the soils at the area that would receive the dredge materials to see if they were contaminated. And now we have to monitor the material that's being dredged, compare the two to make sure that what we're putting on the ground is not degrading the soil or water quality conditions. So. It just seems kind of funny that since we're considered to have a very pure bay and we're growing all these oysters and we're advertising what the clean waters and the beautiful waters of the bay, that we're then we're thinking, oh, we got to have contaminated soil. It's just kind of an oxymoron. It, but. It's a common thing with dredging, you know, that they worry what's stuck in the mud. But I, I fully expect that we'll be able to use that dredge material and it'll actually be considered a valuable asset that the Harbor District has generated. And so what you were saying is, is like backfilling behind the dikes. Yeah. It would be used to de uh, do that. If we put it in front of the dike, say to build a salt marsh plain in front of the dike to keep the erosion away, you couldn't really complain about it being uh, contaminated because you'd just be going back in the bay where it came from, so it wouldn't be any different. But if we put it on non-bay lands, they would like to know that we're not contaminating. But I think that we would be able to do that. And uh, the Harbor District is looking at a number of sites where they could stockpile it so it dewaters and then the material would be available for people that want to hopefully build up their agricultural lands. Any other questions? Uh, Linda, go ahead. Thank you for that presentation. You're welcome. I heard it before, and it's always fascinating, all those little facts, uh, the sinking and rising. It's just fascinating, actually. Um, I was curious about the, uh, you said that there were some public and private property owners of um, these dikes that have the potential of failing. Um, obviously, public ones are the city's responsibility or county, wherever they might be. But what about the private owners? Is there, uh, other than just wanting to save their own properties, are there any other incentives or ways that the city can influence them to uh, repair their levees? Yes, there is. When we do the next presentation on some proposals that uh, we've developed with the city for uh, to submit to get funding, one of them is is really building a partnership or a collaboration with all the people that own that land, like that Eureka Face Slough unit. That we know who owns the shoreline, and we know who's benefiting from the shoreline, who owns property or utilities on the interior. And I think partnerships with uh, entities like PG&E and Caltrans, who have much deeper pockets than some of the, the smaller ranch owners that happen to own the shoreland. But I think bringing all those people together to collaborate, the county, the city, um, you know, the Harbor District, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, I think we can build a huge partnership team and everybody can bring something to bear. If it was just left up to the individual shoreland property owner, 
I think, you know, they're in the business of ranching. They wouldn't even know how to begin a process like that. And I think that's really where the city, through its local coastal program update, can provide that leadership and say this is a way, this is an adaptation strategy where we can help all the landowners and the utilities, you know, that use that area to secure funding to try to do something about it. So, yes, I think yeah. that partnerships is a way to go. That's good. Um, I, have, I have another question. Um, so the, there seems to be like maybe a trend in certain neighborhoods to uh, put their utilities underground, um, you know, to make them look nicer and uh, more modern or um, I, every once in a while it comes to council through a program where there might be some funding available in conjunction with PG&E to, to do that. And as I remember, one of those communities was actually in the downtown area of um, Eureka that looks to me like it would be affected by, by this in the future. So would this being in, in our local coastal plan and um, would that be something that would um, prohibit that um, because of this situation or some other way to be mitigated? I think the way to look at it is being proactive. You know, that, uh, you know, as you saw from one of the earlier slides, by 2050, there was a little bit of blue west of Broadway, but not a whole lot, you know. And so, but what that slide really doesn't show you is that's water on the surface. What we found through doing our risk analysis is the, the underground utilities, like the sewer lines, are quite a bit below the surface of the ground. They're being infiltrated by salt water and tide water during the king tide, so they will feel the effect. The sewer lift stations will feel the effect of a little bit of sea level rise. And those utilities will become compromised. And if the wastewater treatment facility is, say, corrupted by salt water going into it and it ruins the biological processing or it's just overwhelmed physically because there's so much infiltration into the sewer lines and the lift station during the high tides, then all the surface land use, all the buildings that are dependent on that sewer line and that sewer system all of a sudden have a big problem, even though they're not inundated at the surface yet. Sea level hasn't risen to that level. The sea level rise impacts that are the biggest priority is what does it do to the critical underground utility? So you're right, putting electrical systems underground, sewer systems, water systems, you know, they need to be uh, sealed and isolated and be able to be accessible to be maintained, you know, if we have rising groundwater. It's not just sea level growing up, it pushes groundwater up with it. And so if we lose just our, our regional wastewater treatment facility that you have, you know, people from Fields Landing all the way up to Indianola are going to feel the impact of that, even if they're not being tidally inundated, they've lost the sewer system. And so that's probably the most vulnerable or most at-risk asset in the city. Uh, that the city owns for sure. Yeah. And uh, another question about um, your study or analysis. Um, are you looking at the impact of sea level rise and how that might affect our wastewater treatment plant and the fact that we discharge effluent on a tidal system? Right. We did, that is uh, one of the first 
things that we looked at was the wastewater treatment facility. The facility itself is high enough that uh, even by 2100, it's not inundated, you know, by um, rising uh, tide elevations. But the outfall, you know, goes out into the bay. And so, um, but I understand, I'm not an engineer, but I understand it has like a, a backflow control valve so that when the tide's rising in, it doesn't come in and penetrate into the wastewater treatment and it drains on the ebbing tide or ultimately it could be pumped. I think the city might even be looking into using the outfall at the old pulp mill, you know, as an alternative site. But there's, um, the facility itself is not threatened. It's all the transmission lines that bring the sewage to that central location. They're the ones that will leak and uh, be, uh, the capacity of the pipes in the system will be overwhelmed by rising tide water instead of sewer, and so you will lose the sewage capacity. And then we run the risk of sewage spills, which would have a big water quality impact on the bay and uh, on the community. So hmm. that will be in our report. And uh, in our engineer Steve Salzman and his firm Greenway Partners did the assessment of all the underground utilities, and that he described it in quite a bit of detail. I think there's something like 22 lift stations in the city of Eureka, and uh, 20 of them are in areas that could be tidally impacted. Um, you know, we've quantified how many tide, there's over 40 some odd tide gates that are helping protect the city and the planning area from tidal intrusion. All those things need to be maintained. Hmm. Even with our new Martin Slough? That one is in good uh, condition because of the new tide gate and the new oh, interceptor. Thank goodness, that's yeah. good to hear. <laughs> a couple for you. Um, so I was wondering if, uh, you know, like in the case of Mar Martin Slough, you know, it seems like the muted tidal regime is really um, better for everyone, um, along with the dredging and the restoration that's going to happen in, in the slough. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that that's an appropriate solution for elsewhere, particularly on the north end of north it, the, the Martin Slough project, you know, was a coho, you know, access project. Mm -hmm. So the muted tide cycle allows for the fisheries passage while regulating the elevation of the tide water so you can still have farming activities. And that would be suitable in other areas where you have anadromous species, you know, in streams. But in those areas where, like those subunits that I showed you, there's no freshwater inflow. It's just tidal and agricultural lands. A muted tide cycle wouldn't necessarily be appropriate in that instance. Okay. But wherever you have freshwater inflow, you want fish to be able to get through. It's an excellent example of the way to do it and to prevent tidal inundation of those areas. I'm just wondering if this is a piece of funding, um, you know, a creative way for us to look for solutions that uh, lessen the impact of city infrastructure. Uh, while also meeting some of those other objectives. Uh, you know, One of the proposals that we'll discuss in the next presentation is dealing with uh, creating an estuary in Elk River, and that would be along those lines that you're talking about. And then do you, do you see opportunities? Uh, you know, I, I noticed at one of the meetings that there were a lot of cowboy hats in the room, um, you know, and clearly the agricultural landowners have an interest in this because they recognize that, you know, their, their lands are primarily the ones at stake. So I'm wondering if you see opportunities for, um, you know, unique funding sources that are specific to the agricultural community? Yes, uh, one of the three proposals that we'll discuss next is uh, specifically targeting the agriculture, the diked agricultural lands and what could be done on those lands. And so if we can develop strategies and measures, you know, to protect those lands, that it would be applicable on any other diked lands around Humboldt Bay or Eel River Delta. And so we, that was one of the high priority things we wanted to uh, tackle was that stakeholder group is a large group on Humboldt Bay that's at risk. 
Sorry, I don't have a ton of information on the next topic, so I, I didn't know that yet. Um, but And then my last question was really about the impacts to the transportation infrastructure and roadways. I, I can't really tell from some of the maps. They're not at a scale that I can see uh, whether there are significant impacts to uh, the Caltrans right-of-way or, or any any major city uh, streets. On the um, In the Eureka Slough area, Caltrans uh, had a climate change pilot study, and one of the pilot sites was the Arcata Bay Corridor for Highway 101. And, and I was involved with that, and we assessed its vulnerability. And that segment of 101 from Eureka to Bray Cut is the most vulnerable segment of the 101 corridor. Mm -hmm. And if those uh, dikes on Faye Slough, you know, next to the airport, if they were to breach, they would flood right over to Highway 101. And under today's tidal regimes, Highway 101 would become a causeway. There would be water on both sides, but the road surface would be high and dry. But by 2030, uh, it would start being covered by high tides, and by 2050, it would be underwater. And so the long-term strategy for uh, Caltrans, at least for the 101 corridor on Arcata Bay, starting with that segment, is either building the road up uh, five or six feet to get it above an elevation of, say, 13 or 15 feet, or putting it on a causeway. Mm -hmm. But putting it on a causeway allows the water to go underneath and through and onto the lands on the east, which are being protected by the highway and the railroad on the west side. So the maintenance of that shoreline is really benefiting Caltrans. And so I think you know, Caltrans generally just looks in their right of way, but they're really being protected by private property and public properties that are protecting the shoreline. Otherwise, their property would be flooded. So we're hoping to bring them to the table, uh, along with pg and other utilities and uh, entities uh, that can bring something to bear with how do we do something about it. Thank you. You're welcome. So is the subsidence that's happening in the bay, uh, does it have like a mechanical stress on our our sewers and our other uh, water lines and infrastructure that is, is near the bay? Is it just the bay or is it a whole, whole area? Going I think down? it's the whole region around the bay. I don't know how far inland it goes. And, it, and it's not uniform that uh, it's dropping much faster down in South Bay and down by the Eel River Delta than it is up in uh, the north end by Mad River or Trinidad. But from Trinidad to Falls Cape Mendocino, it seems to be dropping kind of on a tilt. And I would imagine if it drops much, you know, a lot of the underground utilities aren't very flexible. You know, the water lines and the sewer lines, they could break. It's on a rate of, I think, 1.5 centimeters a year, which doesn't sound a lot, like a lot, but you add it up over decades, it does add up. And uh, so it could have an impact, but it seems to have been um, continual, and there hasn't been any sudden jolts or anything like that. Obviously, it's being pulled down at some point. It's going to release, and it would spring back up. And, um, you know, if we have a major Cascadia event, you know, the, the ground could either go down three feet or it can go up ten feet. It depends on the magnitude of the event. So it's sort of a, that would be a game changer for us. So, but right now it's it's consistently over time going down yeah. you know, one and a half centimeters. And I have not heard of anybody identifying like cracks in the highway or bridges or anything like that or underground utilities. Nobody, it's relatively new that they discovered that it's actually going on. I think it's just over the last five or ten years at the very most. I think if they probably looked, they'd find the cracks on the highway. Yeah, they find. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? All right. Thanks. Thanks for the report. Uh, do you want to take? I'll open the item for public comment at this time. Is there anyone present that would like to comment on the presentation? Okay. 
Uh, we'll close the public comment period then. And um, there's no action required on the report, so we'll move to item uh, eight. Thank you, Mayor and Council. Um, so this item is to uh, ask for Council direction to proceed with a Prop 1 grant to um, help us plan for those vulnerabilities that we just looked at. And I want to reemphasize how lucky we are to have Alderon and Steve working um, with us on this grant program. Um, Alderon was just invited to the State uh, Senate to work with a subcommittee about this topic. Um, Eureka and Humboldt Bay, we are among the leaders in the state on how well prepared we are for this. Um, there are no other communities that are really quite as far along as we are, and it's thanks to the work that Alderaan's been doing. Um, as he demonstrated, we're vulnerable regardless of sea level rise with levees and man-made structures built in the 1890s, 18 and 1910s. Um, that's old infrastructure that needs to be rehabilitated. Even if sea levels dropped, we'd still be vulnerable. Um, those old levees older than 100 years are going to fail at some point, and so we have some vulnerabilities to look at. Um, there's things to think about like US 101 is vulnerable both north and south of the city, and so we would be cut off, and to some degree you can think of that as Caltrans's problem. Um, a lot of the levees are on ranch lands, so you'll have places where there's a parcel where there's a ranch land and the levee is on that private property owner's land, then there's city land, and then there's state land. And you can think, well, if the rancher doesn't maintain his levee, then that's his problem. But if his levee fails and the water floods in, it's not going to stop at the barbed wire fence between their land and ours. So we're all in this together, Caltrans, the city, um, the water floods in and goes over municipal water lines. So that everyone's in this together. It's, it's a big um, project that we're all going to have to work on together. Good news is that we're really well positioned for additional grants. Um, and granting agencies like to see their money that they've spent on studies then spent on implementation. So the fact that we've had these grants programs that have been successful in the past and we're moving forward with them positions us well to go to the next step. So to date, we've done broad-scale vulnerability analysis. The next steps are look at adaptation project planning, look at specific projects. So how, where are we most vulnerable and how can we fix those specific vulnerabilities, then design and permitting and then construction. So the next step is that adaptation project planning. Prop 1 uh, grants are a good opportunity for us to get that project um, planning uh, done. And so Alderon's going to present to you with Steve Salzman three ideas we have for Prop 1 grants, and we're going to ask for council direction to proceed with applying for those grant applications. Thanks, Rob. So the, um, you probably heard of the, the water bond that was uh, approved um, on the last round of voting. Uh, Prop 1 is what it was called. And so it's for water-related projects. And each of the resource agencies are uh, going to have essentially their own grant program to award. Uh, the State Coastal Conservancy, who's funded uh, the Humboldt Bay Regional Collaboration effort, is uh, going to have, I believe, it's $14 million in this budget that's just been uh, approved by the governor. The Ocean Protection Council, who's funding your local coastal program, Sea Level Rise Update, I believe is going to have $17 million. And we've been told that they are going to release requests for proposals uh, probably in August. And they are going to request proposals four times a year, which seems rather daunting to be 
having that many rounds of proposals. But uh, Rob wanted to make sure that the city was out front and ready uh, when the, the proposals came out. And so we asked if, if any of the adaptation strategies that we're considering could lead into projects. And we came up with three projects that we think would help make the city more resilient uh, for sea level rise and implement some of the adaptation measures. Uh, the grant program or Prop 1 program had some very specific purposes of what it was to be used for and we found that many of the principles that they identified uh, fit exactly what we're doing. And one is to help uh, uh, reduce the impacts of climate change on communities and ecosystems. Another is to increase the resiliency to sea level rise, protect uh, coastal bays and estuaries, protect natural systems and functions, water quality, flood management, and protect rural and urban watershed health uh, to improve stormwater uh, runoff systems and to re reduce pollution from contamination. The three projects we're going to propose satisfy all of those purposes. And so what we've uh, done is we've identified some projects and then uh, rather than just producing the project on the basis of the city's interests alone. We've gone out and we've sought partner, partners to collaborate with us based on property ownership or asset ownership within the area. And I'm happy to say that we've built up some rather large collaboration of property owners all wanting to support this project. The first one is in the Elk River estuary um, in an intertidal area. What we would like to do is on two city-owned parcels one on the right bank would be to take down the dike and the tide gates. It's already salt marsh behind it, but it's not getting daily tidal flushing, and so there's no sediment coming in to make the salt marsh resilient to sea level rise. And we would like to open that area up and lower the channels that are in there uh, so that they would support eelgrass habitat and make the salt marsh uh, uh, much more resilient. It's about 23 acres. That would be a project the city could actually implement right away or it could make it available as a mitigation uh, uh, area for somebody needing to offset their impacts on Humboldt Bay to salt marsh or eelgrass. The other parcel is on the left bank of the Elk River. Uh, and the idea there would be to excavate a series of sinuous channels through the former salt marsh area that's behind uh, the railroad and between Highway 101, reintroduce tidal flows and connect it to the Elk River so that we'd actually create a much more diverse and extensive uh, estuary for Elk River, which would greatly uh, enhance coho and uh, other salmonid production. The estuary on Elk River is essentially a linear channel. There's no associated salt marsh and, and uh, slough channels uh, with it. And that's what we were trying to create is a, a diverse um, estuary. And while we were developing this, other property owners, the Humboldt Bay Harbor District, the Humboldt County, PG&E, um, the Natural Resource uh, Conservation Service approached us through the Coastal Conservancy and said, we own property next to the cities. Could you extend this uh, estuary and intertidal wetland enhancement onto our property? And we've looked at now we could actually design from Elk River all the way to Humboldt Bay, just south of King Salmon, as a continuous uh, uh, estuary complex for Elk River. and. Um, this would also help protect Highway 101. The excavated materials could be used to build the salt marsh plain along the west side of 101 to help protect it from uh, wave erosion. It would enhance cocoa fisheries, and it would create recreational opportunities. It wouldn't cost the city any money to uh, develop uh, the project or uh, administer the project. That would be part of the, the grant. And there wouldn't be any loss of developable upland area associated with this. This would all be area that uh, uh, provide uh, benefits for wetlands, eelgrass, 
in other habitat. This is the zone that I'm talking about. Up at the top is the wastewater treatment facility. Right below that arrow, you can see Elk River uh, traversing the area. And then the area all the way down to uh, uh, the Humboldt Hill off-ramp is city-owned property. Next to that is property the uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service has an easement on. And then next to that is PG&E, then some private property, then the county and Humboldt Bay Harbor District. And so you can see the area would stretch from Elk River um, all the way down to um, um, King Salmon and down to Humboldt Bay. So Question. that's the first project. Creating that area like that, would that give us uh, uh, credits towards uh, mitigation and other areas? Some of the area could be used for uh, uh, mitigation. I think that the way it would work is the initial proposal is to do an environmental analysis of what's out there in that area, come up with a, a preliminary uh, engineering design, a 30% design of what we could do with that, and that would be phased so it would go across all those different property ownerships. And then uh, at the same time, uh, we were proposing to develop a full design for the area to the north of Elk River, that 23-acre area, and secure the permits for that. And then if somebody wanted to use that for mitigation, they could pay for the construction of that site themselves and get the mitigation credit. It could be the city for its projects, or it could be for any other entity on Humboldt Bay. In the areas to the south, we would uh, apply for a second phase grant from the Coastal Conservancy to develop the engineering designs and permits so that that could be built in phases uh, by property owners seeking additional grants. So it does have that mitigation uh, credit uh, ability in there if somebody was willing to step forward and pay, say, for the construction after the design and permitting was secured. The second project is the Eureka Face Slough Dyke Lands that I showed you earlier. Um, that's that uh, subunit uh, where the Murray Field uh, Airport is, Jacobs Avenue, Highway 101. You can see the city's boundary, which is the black line. Uh, the Department of Fish and uh, Wildlife owns a wildlife refuge. Up towards Indianola and Braycut is private agricultural land. And so there's quite a few different property owners. The county um, and um, Caltrans and PG&E would be likely partners and collaborators in this as well as private property owners. And this project, uh, again, uh, would not cost the city anything fiscally or lose any uh, developable land in the course of implementing it. It would benefit the city in that the dikes uh, ultimately is the, the end point, is to be able to come up with designs to enhance or elevate the dikes to protect the lands behind that, to improve the tide gates, to protect Murray Field, uh, to make the Jacobs Avenue commercial area more secure and uh, to make the wildlife uh, refuge and uh, private agricultural lands sustainable uh, going forward for maybe the next 50 years or more, and to protect uh, Highway 101 and those utilities that uh, traverse that land. So there's a lot of beneficiaries in there that we think that, and in our preliminary discussions with the Coastal Conservancy and these other property owners, everybody's excited that the city's stepping up to provide the leadership to pull the grant together to submit it and then uh, it would be then we would form a stakeholder group of property owners and assets to uh, inform them of what the risks are and vulnerabilities have them select the uh, adaptation strategy for the short and the long term develop uh, viable projects uh, like what we proposed on elk river and get the funding uh, actually implemented we thought this as a pilot project 
would be an example to all the other agricultural owners of other dike lands, like the other subunits on uh, Elk River or Eureka Slough and other areas, if we were able to get permits uh, to actually enhance uh, the dikes and do the work, then these other people would be able to build on that without having to break new ground. We, uh, with our regional planning effort, we try to bring all of the agricultural lands together around Humboldt Bay, all the property owners, and try to go through this process. And it, it became overwhelming in that there were so many different players. And the ranchers are busy being ranchers, not doing planning. And so it's, diff it's a hardship for them to take on this task. And so uh, we decided to let's select a pilot area that would be an example for everybody else and for the agencies to follow. And so this was an area that the city had identified in a previous grant program. And so we're pursuing that one. And then uh, lastly, um, project that uh, Steve Salzman, has, uh, his firm has developed in the course of us doing our risk analysis. The tide gates and the lift stations along the city's uh, waterfront and the shoreline, also within the Humboldt Community Services District and the city, because uh, the lift stations feed the regional wastewater treatment facility. Many of those things haven't been assessed or evaluated in a long, long time. Many of them aren't functioning under tide gates. And so this would be something that fits the criteria for Prop 1 of trying to alleviate stormwater uh, uh, problems, flooding problems, water quality problems, and alleviate or make the city more resilient to its wastewater system. And so this would involve a lot of engineering of assessing those water control structures, developing what needs to be done for those, and then developing subsequent grant proposal to actually implement those projects and permit those. So these are the three projects that we think have a high probability of being uh, awarded this first time around. One of the things that our, we're trying to do, one of our strategies is we're trying to get out of the gate first and get in front of the, all the other coastal cities and counties on uh, California that are also going to go after this uh, same money. The advantage we have, as Rob pointed out, we've already done four years of sea level planning on a regional collaborative basis. So we're farther along than everybody else. And I think that we are in a good position where the state is invested in our regional planning effort. They've invested in the city of Eureka's sea level rise planning effort. And now we're at a point of saying, well, now we're ready to do projects. And I think it would be probably a good chance that they would see the merit in funding some projects with nothing else to show uh, on a pilot basis how this stuff can be done. So I think we're in a good position to pursue these funds. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the beginning, they're actually going to ask for proposals four times like for this year and for the following year until they use up their, uh, the money that's been allotted to them. So I think we'll have more than one bite at the apple, so to speak. But we tried to come up with the best projects first. And that's all I have to present on that. If okay. Uh, questions, oh, Marianne? This is the tide gate, if you wanted to see. And this is a lift station. And this is some of the locations where the lift stations are at risk on Jacobs Avenue and down by King Salmon and uh, Elk River Slough. I'm sorry. I got uh, wrapped up in my, my own dialogue. Thank you for that. Um, I, my question was about that last project, the the, the third uh, one on the lift, the gates. Mm -hmm. um, so I know we have a currently we have a major problems at C Street and First Waterfront Drive. Um, is that something that this would be targeted toward? Because I don't know that it's got anything to do with uh, uh, um, gates I or not to Steve, who's our project engineer, if he knows that area. 
would that have any immediate kind of benefit for us? That falls into not so much of a tide gate issue, but the outfall. There's there's a bunch of outfalls that Alderon showed the stars on the map. Some of them are tide gates, some of them are outfalls, and the outfalls are just culverts going out into the ocean or going out into the bay. And a lot of it is problems with drainage ditches that are not being maintained, as well as the gates that are not closing. So it's a combination. So would that, would that portion of that funding help us with that? Yeah, I think it would. And I think it would be included in the analysis for all of the areas along the waterfront. So, so at this point, is this all just analysis? There's no implementation? It's about a 30% design phase as well. Because you don't know exactly what the permits are, you're going to don't know exactly what the engineering is going to be. So you have to get a little ways into the project, and then phase two of the grants would be doing the full design and then implementation. And so, what are we asking for at this point? Just up to the 30% design and probably uh, regulatory constraints uh, documents. Okay. I was wondering uh, what's happening with some of the levy districts uh, that are sort of defunct. It sounds like there might be some additional jurisdictions uh, or or um, constructs to deal with in that regard. There's a reclamation district uh, remnant of one on Arcata Bay okay. um, for the property owners there. And uh, they did get a FEMA grant after Hurricane Katrina to do fortification on their dikes. Um, but there's no baywide... Um, Dyke District. The Humble Bay Harbor District's jurisdiction is tied to the shoreline of Humble Bay, and they have uh, regulatory authority over doing anything on the shoreline. So if you want to improve your dike, you've got to get a permit from them. They could easily become a dike district and, uh, you know, uh, provide sort of a unified management concept uh, for the whole bay. You know, they haven't pursued that. It wasn't part of their enabling legislation. The Humboldt County Board of Supervisors also have the ability, I think they have created a flood control district, and they actually, uh, I think, developed a small flood control dike district for the Jacobs Avenue area so they could pursue uh, funding for technical studies for the uh, FEMA work that's being done on, in that area. So the county could create a dike district for the entire bay and uh, charge them with uh, uh, management and responsibilities for that. One of the things that we're hoping to develop out of that pilot project on Eureka Slough is, is that you know, there's not, um, the dikes aren't different from Arcata Beta, uh, the Eel River Delta. That, you know, they're basically built the same way, they're fortified the same way, they're maintained the same way. So if we could get permit clearance to increase the height and fortified dikes, if it works on Eureka Slough at that pilot project, it would work anywhere else that there's a dike. And so our hope is that we would get a programmatic permit from the Coastal Commission and all the other authorities like the Army Corps of Engineers. And so maybe there would be some entity like the Harbor District that could step up, be the umbrella lead agency, have one permit from the Coastal Commission for dike enhancement on Humboldt Bay, and then all the property owners then could apply their site-specific designs and receive coverage. It would make more sense to do that than, I have no idea how many property owners own the shoreline of Humboldt Bay, but I'm sure it's in the hundreds. It would be simpler. And so that's something we're going to try to pursue as a strategy. So does that mean that um, once a district is created or uh, that, does that allow access to FEMA funding and also does that allow uh, people's flood insurance rates in the future to be lower if, they're, uh, if FEMA certifies a? 
a Denker levy? The way the districts work is it's a taxing, it's a special district, so it taxes all the property owners that mm -hmm. benefit from that shoreline structure. And supposedly the taxes, the revenue they generate is sufficient to physically maintain that uh, dike structure. Mm -hmm. The Arcata Reclamation District, you know, had that taxing authority and they taxed their properties, but not at a sufficient rate. They didn't have the money to actually repair or maintain their dike. And they ultimately, in an emergency situation, qualified for a grant from FEMA and they were able to receive the grant because they're a, a public entity not a private entity, so they can receive the grant. You need a sponsoring agency to get FEMA money or Army Corps money. Um, but again, it depends on whether they uh, generate enough revenue to be able to repair and maintain those dikes, which is the reclamation district with that FEMA money, um, they spend almost $2 million a mile to fortify mm -hmm. their dikes. Mm -hmm. And the city of Arcata did some work at the same time, and they spent about $900,000 a mile. That's still quite expensive when we're looking at 41 miles of dikes on Humboldt Bay. It's a lot of investment. So uh, I don't know if the properties behind the dikes, like in that Faye Slough unit, would be a sufficient revenue base to be able to pay for the maintenance of the three and a half miles of dike that are there. Having moved here after Hurricane Katrina to Humboldt County because of Hurricane Katrina, I can say that I have a special interest in, <laughs> in uh, making sure that, that we address this fully. And, and, you know, I think when I have talked about it to people, they think I'm one of the sky is falling people. Um, but I think having seen firsthand the, the impacts, you know, that I'm, pretty devastating. I'm concerned. Yeah. I, I do have one more question for you mm -hmm. that's uh, about the first project, um, the continuation of the uh, of the uh, Elk River Slough. Yeah, the, the Elk River Slough project. Uh, I was wondering if there's any possibility of linking the um, continuation of our trail, um, you know, down to the King Salmon area into that, and even possibly tapping into additional funding for the emergency evacuation route, um, or or some other way of making that uh, that project tied in to to this. I think that's entirely feasible. You know, I'm sure there's probably a regulatory hurdle somewhere in there, you know, on, on being able to do it. But physically, it's possible. Um, you can walk from King Salmon, you know, all the way up into Eureka um, without any difficulty at all. And I think it would be a great recreational addition to the city's, you know, waterfront. Um, it's not necessarily something that we were including in this grant proposal because it's mostly uh, associated with trying to develop resiliency to sea level rise and other or improve aquatic habitat. They didn't really list public access or recreational opportunities, but that wouldn't preclude the city from going after a different funding source to uh, combine with this one, you know, to maybe do the same things at the same time. I'm sure that, you know, Miles knows where the different pots of money are for this type of an activity. We could certainly talk to him about could we combine this with another funding source. I would love for it to be noted as something to even kind of consider. An, an, uh, obviously, the initial alignment is sort of already there, uh, but, uh, you know, possibly tapping into other funding streams for, you know, emergency access or evac might yeah. be another, another lens to look at it through. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Are these uh, listed or presented in any particular order of preference? No. Okay. No, it's just uh, we started with this one first and, and worked all the way through to the, the list stations. They would all be submitted together as separate projects so that uh, 
the Coastal Conservancy, if they didn't uh, want to award three projects to one entity, could pick one or the other. But then we would resubmit them on the subsequent funding rounds that they've identified for the rest of the year. Okay, so from your perspective, they they all have potential, mm -hmm. not necessarily one over the other. It just kind of crossed my mind about um, the third one um, and the, the tide gates and the lift stations. Um, because of our particular um, wastewater treatment process that I understand is fairly unique mm -hmm. uh, um, or very unique, we might even be the only ones that are doing that now, um, I wonder if that would boost our chances of funding since it's such a unique and isolated predicament. I think it would. You know, our risk analysis showed the wastewater system is the most at-risk uh, utility or asset there is in Eureka. And so I think that would make it a priority, you know, in the funding agency that's primed to help coastal communities be more resilient to sea level rise. If we say this is the most vulnerable one, we need to address it first. Um, you know, I think that they would listen to the engineering behind that because it, uh, there's a lot at risk if it goes down. And so, um, and there's, uh, it's a regional facility, it's not just the cities too. So I think that is gonna give it some high ranking. I think ultimately all three of them will be funded, uh, maybe not the very first grant round, but uh, probably this year or next year uh, they will have them. And so uh, depending on how many other grants they get from different areas or how they wanna parcel out the money, um, I think that all three of these, we've been working with the, the Coastal Conservancy in the development of these and seeking out other partners to join in and collaborate with these. And so I think they see it as, uh, and again, as I mentioned earlier, we're farther along than anybody else in developing this. And the city of Eureka is really the heart of Humboldt Bay to address sea level rise. And so I think that I would be surprised if they don't fund one or all of these at some point. Good, thank you. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll open the item for public discussion. Is there anyone present that would like to comment? All right. We'll close the public comment period and return to council. Linda. I'd like to move that we authorize staff to submit a preliminary grant application for Prop 1 funding. Okay. Moved and seconded. Any further comment? Go ahead and vote. Unanimous yes vote. Motion carries. Okay. Moves us to city manager's reports. We have, well, actually, I have two reports, Your Honor. The first one will be the police department. Chief Mills will present on crime statistics, and we'll have a short one from Brian Gerving uh, giving an update on the water conservation ruling. Well, while Pam is bringing that up, good evening, Mayor and Council. We appreciate the opportunity again to present on what's happening at the Eureka Police Department. Um, in the next month, a little bit over a month, we'll have the second quarter of crime st statistics come out. So I'd like to get these statistics to you so that from the first quarter so you can have something to compare them with. Uh, generally, we compare the same quarter in a year to the same quarter in the previous year because things like weather, um, uh, population, tourism, there's a lot of things that can drive crime statistics, so you try to keep it similar. But at the same time, uh, you don't want to be um, uh, not keeping up to date on a monthly basis as well. 
uh, and what happened the previous quarter. So what we're going to do is go through the first quarter of 2015 and take a look at some of the crime data. The sworn personnel in our police department are primarily responsible for going after the predatory criminals, those who are recalcitrant, those who desire to commit crime on a regular basis, those who are the violent, whereas the civilian staff are to move the community to help themselves. Now, that doesn't mean sworn can't also do that, because they should be doing that, but it also, but the uh, civilian personnel have a great deal to do in helping us mobilize the community, move them towards finding solutions to crimes that are more opportunistic in nature. So if you take a look at, for instance, uh, burglaries uh, since January 2013, you'll see the trend line overall, these are residential burglaries, by the way, overall heading down. Uh, but at the same time, you'll see some enormous spikes in the middle. Now, what, would concern, what concerns me the most, Pam, is there a uh, laser on this thing? The middle button? Strike one. How about that? So um, you'll see a couple of spikes that, that concern me pretty greatly. So if you look at this uh, section right here, you'll see a pretty good dip uh, during uh, September, November, and then coming back up in January a little bit. If you look at the same time frame in 2014, you see an enormous spike. Well, that's what we get pretty concerned about. And you start asking yourself questions as to why is this happening and what can we do to stay in front of this. Now, as we implement our new records management system, we'll be able to spot these trends hopefully a little bit quicker rather than downloading data and, and uh, trying to sort through it. It'll be a little bit easier. And we can also segment the difference between a commercial burglary and a residential burglary. They're two different animals. So the idea, and this is a perfect example of what happened in this particular one, we believe, is that we had a pretty small group of people who are causing this spike here. And recently that guy just got arrested for the second time and then sentenced and sent to prison for 10 years. Uh, so residential burglaries are uh, going to prison. What happened is, uh, and then you'll see an, another spike coming probably in uh, April in the beginning part of May right here because he was let out of jail uh, to get his affairs in order to before he reported to prison. And when he got out, he immediately started doing burglaries again. And uh, this time the judge sent him to prison uh, straight away and do not pass go, do not certainly collect $200 again. Uh, one of the other things that we're learning is that, uh, for instance, intelligence, intelligence came out of the Bay Area that affected us here, and we saw it as well, is that uh, young women are helping in these burglaries. So they'll go up because they're obviously a, a woman can be a lot more innocuous than a, than a man, an intimidating man, go up knock on the door, I'm looking for my cat, do you mind if I pick some flowers in your yard, uh, can I use your phone, uh, can I get a drink of water, and a lot of these are happening fairly early in the morning. And then if nobody answers the door or if um, the person is maybe a little bit more elderly or then they'll watch the house for a little bit, then the person leaves, then they'll go ahead and do the burglary. This is not only happening here, but as I said, in the Bay Area. So that information we got out to the community as quickly as possible. And our calls for service went up for burglary casers because the community was now aware of it through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have a variety of ways we're getting these out. And we were able to uh, 
uh, identify some of those people, again, some of the same crew that was responsible for that spike right there. And it was interesting because some of the community members had surveillance footage for us. Once we put out that information, they were able to get us to that. Well, that may not be enough to arrest somebody. It certainly was enough to uh, stop and, and question them. So um, we're interested in taking a look at these and making sure that we can uh, continue that trend line going down over time. Moving next to violent crime. Uh, we're happy that the trend line is going down and continuing to go down. Uh, although they're smaller numbers, uh, so you can get larger spikes, as you can see here and here. And uh, you'll also see that sometimes around the holidays, you'll get these spikes. Uh, and a lot of those are street robberies, where you get people who are uh, desperate for cash. It's the time of the year to be jolly, and, and uh, some uh, frequently wind up doing robberies. If you remember, about a year ago, we had uh, a woman who was doing robberies in the Old Town area. So she was good for four or five robberies. We were able to arrest her, and she went to, to prison as well. Uh, I think the thing to note is that sometimes people get on a, on a, on a tear, uh, whether it's because of drug addiction, because of just they get out of control as a person. And that's who we have to really work to identify and stop as quickly as we possibly can, whether it's through incarceration or through family and friends intervening. There's a variety of mechanisms you can do that. But with the, when they're on that kind of a tear, it's important to get to them quickly and stop them because we know that they're going to, when they get hot, they're going to continue on that, on that path as frequently as, as they possibly can. Um, we also know from looking at this that we need to staff up uh, during certain times to meet that threat. And so we, this is called data-driven policing or intelligence-led policing where you're looking for two different kinds of trends, A, the people trend the people who are committing these things and then try to intervene with them as quickly as possible. And that takes a great deal of thought in as well as uh, source and human coverage, as well as uh, the data to suggest of what we can do differently. Now, one of the things we will be able to do with our new system is be able to what's called look at micro hotspots, where you can drill it down as far as you can to a, a section of town or an intersection and then, and then find the dosage that you need to go in and then treat that particular problem. And right now, the research suggests that sometimes even as little as 20 minutes of an officer being able to spend time in that area can really affect the crime in that area. So uh, we look forward to being able to map that, and uh, Riley will be helping us do that with our new system. So the crime index total, you'll see, has risen about 7% uh, since two, January 2013 through now. And the reason that it is rising and continuing to rise is because of petty theft. So larcenies, uh, $400 and under, is our largest category, which drives the overall numbers. So people stealing bicycles, people stealing plants off the front porch, people stealing a variety of things. Uh, and we know that uh, you know people frequently complain that, well, not everybody's reporting it. Well, we're aware of that. About According to the Justice Department, about 39% of property crime gets reported. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that's fairly consistent around the country. It's not just here. So we're, we're comparing pretty much apples to apples. Uh, now, uh, we hopefully that will tick up a little bit as we make it more convenient to people uh, so that they can report it uh, via the web. And that will help people report it so we can look at that data. I'm more concerned about looking at the data than I am the overall number of where it, what it reflects uh, in the city so that we can intervene in those areas. 
And uh, so the crime index is fairly stable, although going up a little bit, and this is also a trend that's fairly consistent. Uh, what we're seeing because of Prop AB 109 and Prop 47 that many cities are rising. In fact, the violent crime is skyrocketing in many cities across the country. And we're going to continue to take a look at that and, uh, and uh, try to manage it. The overall crime index by quarter uh, is, is something we're taking a look at. And again, the, the spikes that you see uh, are mostly property crime, and uh, it's something we're certainly uh, continuing to watch about, to watch. So the highlights and the rankings. Quarterly comparisons between uh, quarter one 2014 and quarter one 2015, violent crime fell uh, from 40 cases to 25 cases, or 37%. Certainly a step in the right direction. Um, we, one is too many, but at the same time, we'll take what we can get. Property crime increased by 22% during the same period of time. That hurts, and um, and uh, I think there's very few people in the city who have not been touched by somebody stealing something that didn't belong to them. Um, March had the lowest number of residential burglaries since January of 2013, uh, and we're continuing to see a fairly low rate after those arrests that our officers made uh, with the help of community members. Larceny has risen the most and is driving per capita crime rates. 183 thefts in March of 2015 was the highest we have seen in the last year and a half. However, what's the good news? Where do we rank compared to other cities in our, in our state? Uh, public CEO had the top 10 most dangerous cities in California. Eureka was not one of them. And I know that we get occasionally these, you know, hysterical um, uh, rants about, you know, we're number two in the country and all this, it's just frankly not true. Uh, if you take a look at a snapshot and try to look at the numbers and, you know, of two different months and collect them together and then rank them that way, then you can guess you can get some, some ab abnormalities. But I think public CEO is probably a little bit more reliable than some alarm company magazine. And then Eureka was actually 77th in uh, in crime, uh, according to statewide statistics, however, we ranked ninth in property crime, and uh, and that is obviously too high. So, what are we doing about it? I think probably the biggest question and most important question is: much of the theft is pre is preventable. Um, some is not preventable when there's a highly motivated offender, like we saw on the burglary uh, side. That's when our officers really have to work hard, focus, and really go after those folks that are doing those those kinds of crimes. Uh, routine activity theory is, is a popular notion in policing where you get crime when opportunity uh, meets a motivated offender and there's a lack of a capable guardian to take control of that, uh, to take cover that property. Um, for instance, taking property out of your car. Now, I tweeted out a little while ago as I walked through the downtown area and just looked in cars and counted 10 cars in a row that had laptops, purses, iPhones, uh, they might also left their first child on the front seat. Now, you should be able to leave whatever you want, anywhere you want, and in in that should be there. But that's not the culture that we live in nowadays. And so we can, people can help us help our community become safer by securing those property, the property. That's what a capable guardian is, someone who's guarding that property. Um, you know, uh, uh, I think I've said this before, but hide it, lock it, keep it. If you... You know, keep it out of sight. If you lock it in the trunk, you're probably going to wind up keeping it uh, as opposed to laying it on your front seat. And then the last thing is most crime is opportunistic, so what we're going to have is the 
as the new positions working with the community to mobilize the community, to work with the community uh, to help them take control of their own little sections of, the, of their neighborhoods. And uh, each going to be each citizen's responsibility, and our people will go out and work with them to help that mobilization to increase the risk to the offenders. When they see the young people in the street who are knocking on their doors at weird times, call us, and we'll explain how to call and what they can do. Uh, increase the risk associated with taking uh, that property. Uh, natural surveillance, video surveillance, um, neighborhood uh, groups walking. Uh, they can also reduce the reward. If it's a property becomes unusable to someone else, it's less likely to be stolen. Doesn't mean it won't be stolen, it's just less likely. And then uh, they can also remove the excuses, for instance, uh, signage and things like that that can help people. And it's not just property crime, it's, it's all kinds of crime. So that's my report, and I would certainly entertain any questions that you might have. Questions? Linda, go ahead. So if people are seeing uh, houses being cased for burglaries, they should call? Immediately, 911. Uh, no doubt about that, and thank you for clarifying. Uh, you know, a lot of people, especially good folk, don't want to bother the police. Right. Uh, the, the people who are constantly calling the police about them arguing with their neighbors and so forth, you know, we get enough of that. That's the stuff you don't want people to call. Well, you want them to call, but the point is you want people who are really curious about somebody that seems abnormal, abnormal behavior in your neighborhood, call. It's not normal for a person to stand in front of your house at 7 o'clock in the morning smoking a cigarette that you don't recognize um, and talking on a cell phone and, watch, you know, and talking to people in the car. Calls. Um, you bet. I have a question about the Chief's Advisory Board, though. It's not really related to your presentation, but I'm wondering how the uh, process is going and if, if you could give us a little bit of an update on that. I can. Uh, we have uh, uh, numerous submissions. Um, I actually looked at them today. I haven't counted them, per se. But we have numerous submissions, and the next step is for me to sit down with the mayor and the city manager to discuss uh, those submissions and then... Uh, probably clarify the process by which we'll uh, go through and make the selection. So, yes, it, it, we're happy that we got a lot of submissions. There are a lot of very interesting people from reading through the resumes and, and the paperwork that they turned in. Very cool. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Chief. Bet. He's our 4% man. <laughs> That, that's the really good piece of news for the evening. So, yeah, we wanted to uh, give a little bit of an update to the council uh, about everything that's happened really in the past week. As you know, we've been up in the air for quite some time, not knowing whether we were going to be faced with a, a reduction in our water production of 24%, 12%, or 4%. And uh, we got that update on Wednesday that the state accepted our revised data, and uh, we were at 12%. And then on Thursday, uh, the really excellent news uh, that Humboldt Bay's application on behalf of, of the district itself along with its four urban water supplier customers had been approved and so we've been granted the, uh, the exception in the regulations that means we only have to reduce our overall water production by four percent and that's uh, each given month 
as compared to the same month in 2013. So we've gone and, and done that analysis, and for the first five months of this year, uh, we're looking at an overall reduction in water uh, production of 11%. So we're already ahead of our target, and uh, some months it's more. The lowest month, uh, the lowest amount of reduction was 5%. So everybody's doing a really good job of being conscious of their water usage, and I think, uh, you know, in many ways, this was excellent news for us. Can't really stress enough how huge a deal it is. There were only five uh, urban water suppliers in the state out of 411 that were granted, and all of them were, were these five customers in Humboldt County, uh, five customers of Humboldt Bay. So it's uh, really great news both from a funding standpoint, you know, no longer facing the same precipitous drop in revenues. Um, like we would have with a 24% reduction in consumption, um, not having to figure out what methods we would use to achieve that kind of reduction without touching some of our industrial and commercial users that can't really reduce their, their consumption. So it's uh, really tremendous news and, and we're excited about it and just wanted to get in front of you with it and see if you have any questions about it. Go ahead, Marion. Well, um, I had a friend who was looking at her water bill. She's not a she's a community services district person, but um, she said, "Gosh, you know, um, like she was at two or something, and she went down to one, and she said it was seven hundred and forty gallons is one unit, seven hundred forty-eight, forty-eight, and so she went down seven hundred and forty-eight gallons, and she got a four dollar." savings on her water bill and she was very surprised about that and because of, because we have this 700 gallon thing you know like if you're a one if you are a one unit person nothing you do is going to so does any of that actually show up in the like the gross water usage even though it's not showing up on individuals water bills when we look at the entire system we can measure really accurately what kind of reduction in consumption or in production we're achieving. When you look at it at the individual customer level, unless it's a customer that uses a lot of water, it's really difficult to measure because I could tell you your friend at only using one or two units a month is, is really the anomaly. That's very, very low water usage, so I'm quite impressed. But um, what happens there is, is one month, you know, say she uses on average one and a half units of water, one month that might be one, one month that might be two because that's the 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 units in which the meter reads. So when you look at it at the individual customer level, it's not possible to measure a 4% reduction in monthly usage or 12 or sometimes even 24. But when we look at the aggregated data for the entire system, then we can get a really clear picture of what's going on. Any other questions? Yeah, go ahead. So the issue Marion mentioned, you know, of just seeing such a minor drop in the in the rate, um, you know, is that something that we can kind of address or give guidance about when we do the rate study? Well, that was that was something that was changed pretty significantly when the last rate structure was adopted five years ago. Um, there was more built into the base rate, and um, the so the base rate is higher and the proportion of the bill that was tied to consumption was lower. 
Uh, the reason behind that is because there's a certain fixed cost in maintaining the system, regardless of how much water people are using. You've got the same maintenance that needs to occur. You've got the same capital upgrade costs and all of that. Really, the things that are different based on consumption for water is the cost of our water supply from Humboldt Bay. And yeah, that's a significant cost for us. And then on the treatment end, you've got some, some chemicals and then energy costs. But really, a very large portion of what we do is fixed costs. And so that's why more of the bill was, was put into the base rate. So I don't see any likelihood, to be honest, that the consumption rates will be going up compared to the, the base rate. Because the base rate just needs to be able to accommodate that, that exactly. uh, maintenance. Okay. Thanks. And the, the other thing that I didn't touch on uh, that I should is regardless of the fact that we got this reprieve from the state with the 4% reduction requirement, we do still have mandatory conservation, conservation measures that are in place. And the, the big ones that everyone needs to be aware of is that uh, watering is limited to Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Uh, you, you can't use potable water to wash sidewalks and driveways. Uh, as always is the case, you can't have any runoff when you're irrigating with potable water. And then the others that people aren't really familiar with uh, that businesses really seem to be getting on board with are that restaurants and other food establishments can't offer water to people unless they ask for it. And that hotels and motels have to provide guests with the option of having their uh, linens laundered on a less frequent basis. So we've put that information out in press release. Uh, we are getting it out through other media outlets as well. And then our annual water quality report is going out shortly to our 10,000 some odd customers and the same insert uh, will be in, the, in that water quality report. So everybody's gonna have eyes on it. And uh, we just wanna make sure everyone's aware of it. Uh, it is being enforced on a complaint basis, but we need to really document for the state what we're doing to be responsible and uh, that's both from an advertising standpoint and an enforcement standpoint. Yeah, yeah Linda, go ahead. So the the no watering on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays essentially, uh, is landscape watering, correct? Does that include food? No, it doesn't. Ornamental landscapes and turf. So if someone has a, a food garden and they need to water on those Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, that's absolutely fine. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Anything further, Mr. Manager? Nothing else, Your Honor. We're adjourned. <laughs>